Hello and welcome to the Hobby Studio Podcast. I'm Megan and I'm joined by Michael. Hello. Um, and Michael, what, what have you done this month? What, what have I done this month? Oh, well, um, I finished off my Drop Fleet Commander ships. Uh, that's for a lovely game by TT Combat. Um, I, well, I say ships, I just finished one fleet, the Scourge. Um, used some lovely colour shift paint from um, Turbo Dork. That stuff is amazing. It's, I love it. It's lovely. It's yeah. really, really nice. Metallic colour shift. Lovely. Um, did some more Necrons. Um, did a few bits for my Zone Mortalis terrain. Um, some armored containers. Now, if you have, if you follow me on social media, I do. I've done a lot of armored containers. I think these were my thirty-third. Wow. In yeah. total. So I you think have I've done a lot like, of them hanging around. There's some in pretty much every box of terrain you've got. Well, it, it's not helped that we literally have one box of terrain because we run a, a, a heresy event every year. Uh, well, you know, twice a year normally, but you know, at the minute. In- in non-interesting in non, times. In non-plague times. Um, and I literally, and I have at the moment 15 boards of scenery. I think it's 15. And one of the boards is literally just armoured Munitorum containers and a sky shield landing pad and some cranes and stuff. And it's sort of like, yeah, yeah this is basically a pile of, this is like a shipping zone and the containers. It's a docks. Yeah, it's a docks. Yeah. yeah, it's a space dock. So, yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting piece of terrain. So, um, yeah, so, uh, but these are for my zone mortalis board, so. Uh, they should look good. Um, I also did a few more custodies uh, for Heresy. Uh, I said I did Necrons, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. And I did a bit more of my Germans for Bolt Action, uh, along with a few other things. But, you know, I paint silly amounts. So You do. You paint a lot. Well, what have you painted? Me. I, I took on a big project. I have finished a Gorgonaut. It looks really good, though. I built it at the very end of February, and it has been... Uh, a labour of love. Just a labour at times. Yeah. Getting the base colours on. I hated the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's often the case when you've got a big thing like that. Getting the Bose base colours on is... Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. It looks it looks alright. Yeah. Some contrast in there, which is quite cool. Yes, I used some contrast paint over metal so that it would have the um, proper coloured metal sheen going on. Yeah, that's awesome. Pretty good. Yeah, it's awesome. So, I also started uh, cross-stitching an Aquila. Nice. That counts towards yeah, the hobby. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, um, what else? Um, yeah, so any anything else big this month? Oh, we've got the new lamp. Yes. Yeah, we've got a, 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 ta- a task lamp, a Lumi task lamp, I should say. It used to be called the task lamp. Now it's the Lumi from the Daylight Company, who are now sponsoring um, the Edge of Empire uh, podcast and Hobby Studio. So we've got a review of that, which will be coming up hopefully tomorrow uh, on day of release uh, of this show which is the Tuesday yeah. Um, and um, yeah it's a really really I mean, I've just turned it off and oh my god it feels like <laughs> it felt dark when you turned it off it's gone dark yeah. uh, but that's quite cool um, yeah so um, yeah what are we talking about today then Megan um, we're me and you are going to be talking about uh, Arianoshka Imperialis yep that's at the end of the show yeah so I'm going from end to middle no, you're in you're in the underworld discussion. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. So yeah, we're doing underworlds in the middle segment. Yes. Underworlds, because um, that was an interesting discussion. Yeah, we still haven't played it since we had that talk with James, though, have we? No, we haven't. No, we've got James Fishish and Turner we... for joining us for that one. Yes, it's going to be coming out of the box soon. Maybe this week. 
Yes. Yeah, this week. Although I don't know, but should we start with Shades by or go to Night Vault or Beast Grave? Hmm. I played Shades by. I'm interested in Night Vault now. Night Vault. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and then the other um, thing was we're discussing Carnivale. Oh yes, Carnivale. Yes. Carnivale. Okay. So let's crack on and talk about Carnivale. Uh, hi guys, uh, I'm now joined by Donald, uh, aka Wookie Gunner. Uh, he's a um, TT agent uh, with, with TT Combat, and he's here today to specifically talk about uh, a game I know very little about, other than it exists, which is Carnival. And I'm looking forward to this. So, hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you this fine Saturday? Oh, doing pretty well. Um... Just trying to keep my head above water at work. But other than that, you know, it's nice taking a little break to talk about gaming. It is. It is. Um, okay. So I think what we'd like to do on this show is we'd like to start with asking a bit about you. What's your background in gaming? How did you get into it? And what are the main games you kind of play now? So um, let's fire away and talk about yourself for a bit, <laughs> Donald. Sure. So there's a couple of things I want to kind of define for the listeners because I know I'm going to do it. And it'll make, it, it'll make a lot more sense to understand it. The mm-hmm. first thing is... Um, I at some point I will interchangeably use the terms TT Combat and Lewis. Uh, as you probably know, TT Combat is the company that makes Carnivale. Uh, Lewis Clark is the lead designer and kind of the rules are for um, Carnivale, so I kind of use them interchangeably when I start talking about the game. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is a term I use personally called one true nerdum, where I personally believe everyone has that one true nerdum. You know, we are, we may be wargaming geeks, we may be football geeks. But there's that one team or that one system or that one thing that we really um, look into and we can talk all day about. So that being said, now we'll kind of get into my backstory. Um, My gaming actually started because I had an attractive sister and I was at at a convention with her and a friend of hers. And I'm the younger brother. And there was a guy who offered to let me join him playing a game called Battletech. Um, he'd been hitting on my sister the entire convention, and I realized that was the only reason he was offering to let the little brother join, but hey, I was up for it. Um, and so that was actually the first game I ever played. This was back in 1987, was Battletech. Fell in love with the game. You know, Kid of the 80s, I grew up on a robot anime, which is what Battletech is based on. Yeah. Found a local gaming store that played Battletech. Parents took me over there on Saturdays, uh, eventually went to college, found another gaming store, uh, fell into Games Workshop because at some point every gamer has to play Games Workshop. Um, the 40K was a little more competitive than I wanted. Uh, Warhammer Fantasy, I'm t- at that time, if you remember, you had the artillery where you guessed the range, and I once missed taking out my op- opponent's general with a great cannon by less than half of an inch because I rolled a two on the scattered die for the bounce. Mm. Um, decided I probably guessed too well to play that game. Ended up in Privateer Press. Ah. While Privateer Press, um, playing Warmer Hordes, um, I was at the game store, saw, saw a steampunk uh, Mad Hatter model, huge fan of Alice in Wonderland, huge fan of steampunk, mm-hmm. decided I wanted a model for collection, found out there was a set of rules that had just come out around them called Malifaux. 
played Malifaux. That became my um, primary game through most of first edition and some of second. Went back to Privateer Press for a while, then um, kind of dropped out of the scene for a bit. Was looking at a Kickstarter, saw this Kickstarter for a new game. Um, it's technically a new edition of the game. Yeah. Some of the models were Comedia Art, which is actually my one true nerdum, mm-hmm. and fell in love. And nice. that game was Carnivale. And since then, I've pretty much stuck with Malifaux and Carnivale as my two primary games. So very sort of mm, historical fantasy sort of. Uh, yeah. 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 It's. It's fu- it's it's funny how somehow I gravitate toward games that involve and so there was a big tear in the space time continuum, um, which is actually I don't know how much you know about Malifaux, but both Carnivale and Malifaux have this idea of an alternate world um, yeah. concept. Uh, with Malifaux, it's the breach. With Carnivale, it's the rent, and that's where magic comes into the main world from. Yeah, so uh, so very very low fantasy, but that's yeah not a bad thing, right? Yeah, awesome. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of my history. Like I said, I you know I bounced around a bunch, but I've kind of found stuff that I like now and seem to be going forward with it. Yeah, I mean that's a very familiar story to a lot of a lot of war gamers out there. I think a lot of war gamers have obviously, as you say, everybody does Games Workshop at some point. Um, and um, yeah, Malifaux, you know, is, is a very, has been a very popular game. Uh, it waxes and wanes where I live, but it, it's still very popular. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably press is the same. <laughs> yeah, I think it kind of went through a resurgence once um, third edition came back out. Oh, so. definitely, definitely. It did slip away for a bit, and it was just picking up again. And then we have the the lockdown. So yes, the the, the horrendous plague. Yes. <laughs> uh, awesome. So at its core, I suppose, what, what kind of a game is uh, Carnivale? Uh, so what kind of setting have we got there? And Sure. So Carnivale is called a um, narrative skirmish game. Mm-hmm. So uh, page six of the Little Wool book that you can download for free off of TT Combat's website has a big red block, the golden rule. First sentence is Carnivale is a narrative-led skirmish game meaning small models and the game is designed to be more about the stories you tell in the game versus the traditional competitive, you know, we're mm-hmm. like chess. Um, so what, so what is the universe? The basic universe is it's 18, it's late 18th century round 1795. Um, a massive tear in the sky was, was, created through a giant explosion that happened called the rent. A significant portion of Europe was destroyed in this cataclysm. For some reason, Venice was miraculously saved, being becoming a area of civilization. In addition, because Venice being Venice, they're designed around building ships. So all the navies get destroyed, all the merchant fleets get destroyed. Venice is able to wreak reclaim their merchant fleet much faster, rebuild it much faster. So they not only are the cornerstone of civilization, they also become the cornerstone of mercantile. Um, unfortunately, though, things aren't going as great as you may wish. Uh, because of the, the rent, the rent um, brings forth magic. It also brings forth creatures from beyond the rift. Uh, these will be known as the Rashar. We kind of get into the factions. In addition... 
you know, people like having sleep cycles. And you don't really get those sleep cycles because you have the really bright red day, you know, time and the really not as bright red time. And so you also end up seeing some more hysteria, some more darker tones to the civilization um, because of that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the backstory. We can go in more detail if you want. Um, Gameplay-wise, um, as I mentioned, it's skirmish, which means typically you're looking at seven to twelve models on the board per side. Um, one of, you know, one of the the factions can go to five. I can technically make a legal list with three models, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. recommend it. Um, <laughs> and um, it uses a dice pull mechanic, so you have every model has a set of stats. Typical human stat is a four, and you roll. You you if you've got a let's say an attack of four, you pick up four dice, one of which is a different color, and you roll them. And in every case except for two, you're trying to get a seven or a better on a d10. Um, ah, every so it time doesn't use the d6s. It does not use d6s. It does use d10s. That's brilliant. Um, Every seven or better is called an ace. If you get one or more aces, that's a success. If you get no aces, that's a failure. And then in addition, because you've got that one die that's different, if you roll a if you roll an ace plus a ten on that, then that's considered a critical. You get additional bonuses. If you roll no aces and you roll a one on the wild die, then that's considered a fumble and you get negatives. Uh, one of the nice things is the um, wild die does count as a normal die. So if you roll one ace on a regular die and a 10 on your wild die, that counts as two aces. And that comes right. into play in a lot of places like combat, for example. Right. Um, and, you know, that's very, very quickly, the you know, the five-minute spiel of the basic mechanics. You, ha- um, you have the target numbers most of the time. You're rolling a set of dice. Sometimes you have an opposed where you and your opponent both roll. You take their aces, they subtract out of your aces, and then whatever you have left is how you calculate your level of success. Right. Okay. Um, Sounds relatively simple. Yeah. It's it's really nice in that it is designed to be a fast learning, fast playing system. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got most of your stuff is just a flat number. Uh, as I mentioned, that there there are two times when you don't use a seven. That is, when you're attacking somebody, you use their dexterity plus a weapon stat called evasion. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a flat, you know, most of the time it's a zero. If it says a one, you add a one. If it says a negative one, you add a negative one. Really simple. Right. Um, the other time is when you're casting spells where you um, it, each spell has a difficulty. And that's your target number instead of a seven. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, literally that's, you know, the dice are actually coded. If you buy the official D- D10s, they're um, 7, 8, 9, and 7, 8, and 9, and 10 are all a different color. So they even make it easy for you to tell on oh, a standard. Right. Um, you know, uh, there are four, I'll call them spendable attributes. Mm-hmm. Um the first one's action points. These re- these come back every turn. For the most part, your leaders have three action points. Your all your other models have two 
there is some variations. For example, there's a model called Harlequin who's supposed to be very fast and dexterous. He gets three action points even though he's not a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, everything you do in the game, except for three things, are one action point. You can, right. If you're in water, you can dive, which is one of the big things about the setting because it's Venice, they do incorporate the fact that you have a you have water. That's actually one of the requirements for the board is that you have a canal. Oh, very um, nice. So it's very dive is, <laughs> right. It is. Um, and I'll get. Uh, let me finish this up, and then I'll get into the terrain aspect. Sure. Um, so the dives are two action points, mm-hmm. and then you have two actions that are actually zero action points. The first one is called an attack of opportunity. In this game, you don't have the traditional ranged versus melee that you might see in, say, Age of Sigmar. Mm-hmm. You have, every weapon has a range. It may be 0 inches. It may be 16 inches. Right. That is a maximum range. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you do have in base-to-base combat contact versus not in base-to-base contact. If you move in base-to-base contact with an enemy model... With one or more enemy models, you may choose any one of those models to perform a free attack. Um, so that is called charging, and mm-hmm. and that's called an attack of opportunity. That's one that is zero. Mm-hmm. The other time that you can get a free action is if you jump once per turn, once per activation, on an object that is smaller than your base size. You may perform a second jump for free. So, for example, and this is kind of leads into that train, which is why I wanted to do it in this order. Um, I can have a stack of barrels. Yeah. I can have a model jump on top of those barrels for one action point. From Now, because the barrels are smaller than his base, he can then for free jump to a rooftop that um, is too high for him to jump to normally. Ah, with his like, second action. So like Go a, ahead. Uh, 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 like a, um, uh, I don't know, you got momentum type of thing. Exactly. It's yeah. you know. Um, now, if he wishes to risk it, he can then use his second action point to move across the roof until he's off the edge of the roof, causing him to fall off the building. There, because this is designed to use. All levels of terrain. There are reasons to be on rooftops. There are consequences of jumping and missing, which is you fall. And you can, if you end on a rooftop um, and you're not completely on the rooftop, then you will fall off. Now, that being said, part of that whole, we care more about narrative versus um, the really strict quarter inch, three millimeter rules is that there is a rule that if you end an activation partially on a surface that is large enough to hold you, you may move the model the minimum distance until they are, their base is completely on the on that object. Right. So if you make your jump and you've only got a quarter, you know, you've got five millimeters of a 30 millimeter base on it, you don't know if Adam could fall off. You're allowed to shift your model so he's on, on there. But yeah, so you can pick so the... So there's a bit of leeway for the narrative aspect. Exactly. Um, and that's actually, that's the golden rule box that I talked about is specifically discussing don't hard and fast these rules. Always ha- always allow leeway for the narrative aspect. 
Um, so that is, like I said, very big golden rule of this game. Um, now you can, if you fall, if you move off of the top of a building, this is at least three inches tall or any object. Mm-hmm. So say the top, a rooftop, and you end in base-to-base contact, then your weapon gets what's called a minus five penetration. And mm-hmm. what that is, is when I talked about those dice pulls, the way combat works is I roll my attack, I take the number of di- number of aces I get, I add the damage, and then that becomes the number of wounds you take. Ah. You then roll your you then roll a protection, which is your armor value. Um, it's usually in the two to three range, maybe four or five for kind of heavy armor. Mm-hmm. And, and so you roll your protection plus penetration value. So if you noticed, I kind of stopped the armor at five because as a general rule, the armor stops at five. Mm-hmm. And I also mentioned that the penetration for coming out of the, the building is minus five, which means if I jump off of the building, most models will not get that protection roll. Right. And I have actually lost a game because a guy did this trick I'm talking about, about double jumping onto a roof, falling off of it, taking damage from the fall, but he didn't take enough to kill his model, and then killing me because of the lack of a lack of protection um, due to the minus five penetration. Mm. That's, that's so, kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's what I like about that. And that's that narrative, sto- narrative thing is because, you know, when you're playing games, there's always that story you remember. And Carnivali is much more about the stories you remember at the end that you tell at the pub than it is about the actual minutia of, well, is he an eighth of an inch in range or eighth of an inch out of range? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my favorite game, it was 40K, but it was sort of like the game ended in turn two because we just completely obliterated everybody. Um, and it was kind of epic. Right. And, and yeah. that is, yeah, and that is also one of the, yeah, one of these things about um, because this is a skirmish game, you know, you aren't going to necessarily be pulling models off the board every turn, which is also a nice thing. Oh yeah, um, very nice. You know, if you're a slow painter like me, you know, you you look at thirty models in a a unit, and you're like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I I I know those fields. Yeah. I used to play Empire back in the day, and I must admit, I'm looking at games like Song of Ice and Fire, and I'm like, that's a lot of models to paint. Yeah, though I've heard I've heard really good things about the gameplay of Ice and Fire. Yeah, same here. Um, but yeah, but like I said, that's really other than knowing all the movements, you know, or knowing all the rules. You have movement, which is horizontal; it's your standard ruler. Mm-hmm. Um, difficult terrain or vertical. You roll a d6, or I'm sorry, you don't roll a d6. You roll, you roll a basic dex. As long mm-hmm. as you get one ace, then you can move your full movement either up to the side. Um, one of the cool things is that if you're moving vertic, if you are moving vertically, then models don't block. Normally, models block movement, which means that you can run up the wall and around somebody if you need to get around them. Yeah. Um, let's see. I've already talked about combat. Swimming is as simple if you start in movement or if you start in water, your movement's at a minus two unless you have a special rule called a water creature, which removes that rule. Mm-hmm. Um, models do have special abilities. A lot of the special abilities are expert something, which basically means that you reroll dice. You can't reroll the wild die. You can't reroll dice that you've already rerolled. That mm-hmm. comes into play because there's a rule. 
you know, you could attack me, and then you have a rule that allows you to reroll miss, uh, misses, and then I have a rule that allows you that forces you to reroll aces. Well, any die that you rerolled that was a miss to an ace, I can't then force you to reroll to turn it back into a miss. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes uh, makes perfect um, sense. Yeah, and you know, the the kind of ten to fifteen minute overview of the rules. That's kind of the rules. It's actually pretty simplistic. Um, you know, we it's designed typically around objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the if you've got the big rule book, it has scenarios in it to reiterate that whole narrative thing. There are thirty five scenarios in the main rule book. Oh, that's a lot. That's nice. On top of that, these scenarios are grouped into seven five scenario starters. Mm-hmm. So um, each of those groups, there's kind of one that's generic. And then there's ones for each of the major factions. Ah, right. Um, so, we, you know, if you're doing the one for, say, the doctors, and I'll kind of go through the factions now, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. Um, the, you know, the doctors, and I can't say their full name, um, the stories are about experiments. They are your mad scientist faction. Mm-hmm. They also have an interesting thing that's referred to as the battery mechanic, where I mentioned earlier you've got the... Um, the currency, which I actually didn't go through all of them. So the currencies are your action points, which return every turn. Yeah. Your life, which is your hit points. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have willpower, which is used for uh, casting spells or for adding dice to your pool. Right. So if you really need to hit them, you can spend will. Mm-hmm. And then you have command points. Not everybody has command points, uh, but those that do, most of them, all, but all of your leaders have command points, and then there's that, and they can be used to activate special rules called command right. abilities. There's a bunch of other stuff that they do, um, but the other big one is the way you roll initiative, mm-hmm. is that you pick one model that has command point. You pick one model, and you roll their current command point value. Ah. So as you start spending these command points to enhance your gameplay you're also lowering your chances of winning initiative. All right, so, so, so you can make your character better and give them a better chance, but you're also lowering their chance to... That's, right. that's, a, that's to, a nice payoff method. It is. And the ni- and the other nice part about it is because it's choose any character, not choose your leader, you can actually kind of couch it where maybe your leader, say, has a command point of four, but then you've got another model that has two, that and that model can only use it on their special abilities, but you can still pick them for initiative. So mm-hmm. your um, your leader can spend his giving extra actions out and things like that. And then when he gets down to one, you switch over to your other guy who still has both of his. Right. Okay, that makes so, sense. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. It's not something I've come across before, but that sounds really really interesting. It is, and, and trust me, late game you start getting into those. Is spending the command point now worth losing initiative next turn? Mm. <laughs> you know, um, but then it's choices. So as I was saying, um, part of the reason I brought that up is the doctor's battery mechanic. The way it works is the doctors are very heavy magic. Um, ah. They're in the fluff. When the rent opened, you know, like I said, they're the mad scientists. They started noticing new scientific inquiries because of the flow of magic. And so they started going farther and farther into their um, experimentations. Mm-hmm. And they found a way 
to tap into the will or the life force of some of their patients um, that have gone crazy. They're referred to as the madmen. So in the game, mechanic-wise, the doctors have spells that have very low will, which means they can't spend a lot of will on spells. Madmen have very high spells or high will and have a rule where if they're within range of a friendly doctor, that doctor can use their will points as if they're his own. Oh. So that's why it's called the matter mechanic, is that they feed their magic off of their patients. And that also kind of gives you a better feel for what I mean when I talk about getting into some of the darker aspects of you know these type of genres. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the doctors who I like to blame for the blame for this plague that we're dealing with there actually is one of those scenarios it's called the fog and the doctors accidentally let uh, poisonous fog um, loose on Venice and the entire game is trying to escape the fog before it kills your models um, so uh, along with the doctors I've already mentioned their char their char are going to be your monster faction along mm-hmm. with the doctors needless yeah. to say you know they've got all the, they've got a lot of the classic tropes in the doctors, um, uh, the island of Doctor Moreau. They have a Doctor Moreau type character, so mm-hmm. you do have a gorilla that has giant bat wings um, that have been grafted onto it. So yes, you oh, can play a flying cool. gorilla. Um, flying gorilla. Yes, <laughs> I like it. So um, you've got your Ashar, which are the creatures from across. The Rent, they also have the Church of Dagon, um, which is how they bring in followers to help, you know, with this the stuff on this side. And, oh yeah, um, the monsters can eat the followers in-game, oh. or the, the slaves. So they, you know, they, they bring in followers, they enslave them. Then the monsters can eat the, the enslaved to get hit points back. That's kind of dark. I like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's. I mean, if you like the grim, dark future, you'll probably like a lot of the themes in in this game because they definitely went into that dark um, side of you know classic Frankenstein level um, yeah, literature. Like um, that Rochard is actually the group that the faction that I primarily play. Mm-hmm. Um, where you have monsters and where you have you know w- witches, you probably have the Vatican. So one of the factions is the Vatican. And they are one of those factions I talked about where they use a lot of command points for this model has command points that can only be used on their abilities because when the rift opened, um, they were able to start doing divine style things. Um, Mm -hmm. They're also going to be your bubble faction where you may have a character who grants bonus protection. He has a command ability that gives bonus protection in an aura around them. Right. Um, so you've got your nobles, which are the patricians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the patricians are your classic Shakespearean style nobles. Um, they also are notorious for having parties of all forms of debauchery that uh, spill out into the str- into the streets. Into well, the, we pay the city guard off. I mean, you can see he's. I've got a guardsman right behind me because city guard is actually part of the patricians faction in the game, mm-hmm. and he's he's going to turn his eyes for a moment while I go kill this guy just to see if I can do it. <laughs> um, and it also has one of the most famous 
models in in the range, which is the Pan Lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is a lady that she's a, she's um, household staff, and um, with household staff, you can either take a really cheap pistol that you can actually shoot in melee. As I mentioned, there's no minimum range on on weapons, mm-hmm. or you can take a cast iron utensil, which gives you stun. Stun gives you minus one pretty much to all of your attributes until the end of your next turn. Plus, you take damage if you start in water. Right. Um, so, she's kind of become famous and infamous in in the um, the circles just because it's this really cool, you know, cook running around with a cast iron skillet. Nice. Um, so now, you notice I've talked about the nobles who kill people, yeah. the doctors who turn them into madmen, mm-hmm. and the shar who eat people. But yeah. I've not talked about anyone who cares about the people. Is, is that, there anybody? <laughs> there actually is. That is the guild. Mm-hmm. So it originally started off with the Thieves' Guild. And over time, the Thieves' Guild kind of started incorporating in all the other guilds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Blacksmith Guild, the Barber Guild, the Cortesian Guild, you know, and created this mass thing, ran from the shadows, um, just known as the guild. And that's kind of your every person, um, your tradesman faction. Mm-hmm. Now, when people ask me to, t- to explain to them the theme of Carnivali and how it plays, what I tell them is to go look up the guild starter gang and look for the Cappadocina model. I never describe it, but everyone knows which model I am talking about. Okay, I'll take a look. Um, And then the other fun thing about the guild is that they have the grandiest cult of the end of days, also known as the Punzanellas. And one of the reasons I'm bringing up the Punzanellas specifically of all the sub-themes is it shows one of the things that I really love about this game, love about Lewis, and love about TT Combat. Mm Mm-hmm. The Punzanillas have a rule called Mindless across the board. Mm-hmm. Mindless says that they do not count for victory points for objectives. Yeah. Now, Punzanillas have a leader character called King for a Day, mm-hmm. which means that you can technically play an entire Punzanilla gang with no other models, but they can't win because all of them have Mindless. Yeah, And during the beta, this was brought up, that people wanted to do this. And Lewis's reaction was, you know what? I didn't expect that. But the Punzanilla leader is the cheapest one. And so he gave the the king for a day a special rule that if he is your leader, all Punzanilla lose the mindless rule. So there's a place where... You know, they literally listen to the fans saying, this is a problem in how I can enjoy the game, and they corrected it. Right. And, and I know a lot of games feel like the developers are just kind of this wall. Mm-hmm. So I, want, I wanted to point out that, you know, this is, and, and this is just across TT Combat in general, but Carnival is my primary TT Combat game, so that's um, why I did it. Now, the last faction is the Mercenary faction, and they're called the Gifted. And oh, I'm sorry, there's actually two factions. Um, the Gifted, you can play as themselves, and um, their starter games can be the Dalart. I mentioned that in my history. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll probably also notice that I mentioned I play Rashar, which is really weird. Um, the Gifted are going to be a very elite faction. Um, they all have magical abilities that aren't spell casting. Mm-hmm. For example, the Commedia dell'Art, the, um, in real life, they were acting, it was acting troops that, um, had archetypical characters that became tropes. And I'm not going to go into that because you don't have time. Um, But in the game, one of the troops started manifesting the attributes of the characters they were playing. And that is why they're Ah. gifted. Um, There's another one called White Dove who has the ability to fly. And she has this kind of magical ranged attack that she can do. Um, There's all these different characters. And like I said, they can be played as their own faction or they can be used in any other faction. Um, So that, that gives you that ability to help flesh out well, I really wish I had a character that does this. For example, Gil typically is very anti-magic. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have a model called Black Lamp, which actually is an anti-magic lamp to help with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can take gifted spellcasters to help bolster if you feel that you really need spellcasting in the, in a guild um, gang. Right. So they're, sort of like the, they're sort of like the, 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 a friend of everybody. Exactly. You know, they're they're your hired guns. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one gifted who is whispered amongst all as the very first gifted. And he is, was a gifted prior to the rent opening. He is the only known gifted prior to the rent opening. He is also known for the fact that he is the only gifted who can pass his gift to other people wow. and bring them under his control. And that is Vlad Dracul. So the final faction I have not mentioned is the Strigoi, which are vampires. And they also have Romani, who are not vampires, but work with them. Mm -hmm. So for all of you, you know, Death Theater Courts and Flesh Eater Courts and vampire fans, they do have vampires in the game, and they do have a backstory behind why there are vampires in the game. Yeah. Oh, cool. um, that, that is cool. I always like to see vampires in a game. Yeah. Um, they've also got a Vargol, which is basically their werewolf. Um, mm-hmm. There are people who are asking for more to bring in more werewolves and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like I said, that's you know, your basic setting. The terrain is I love because it is designed to use the multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Um it includes special, you know, typically you start on your, the main level. Uh, the board, when you actually do the math on the rules, they recommend a third of it be water, a third of it be standard land, and a third of it being um, line of sight blocking terrain. Right. Um, so it's pretty easy. They do want you to have those narrow corridors, have buildings you can jump from, jump to. Mm-hmm. Um there's a special rule, the Capitacina that I mentioned earlier has this rule, where you can start on top of a building, otherwise you can't, uh, which gives him a bit of an advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that's it, you know, kind of in a in a very rambly nutshell. You know, that's a lot about the game. So, you know, now that I've given you a wall of words, did you have any questions or things you wanted me to kind yeah, of expand I mean, it, on? 
it's definitely a very interesting um setting i mean it, it, you know 1793 it's not a particularly standout period of history i guess at least for me having done british history at school um so it, it's a very interesting time and i suppose you've got a lot of you know italy wasn't really a country at that point and there's lots of different stuff going on in europe so right. yeah it was definitely it's definitely still you know that late city state era uh yeah. So, so it's not quite nation yeah. states, but still, right. We we are def- and and like I said, it, the game right now primarily focuses on Venice and the Venetian culture with some with some tag-ons. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vatican obviously has a very Roman influence. Roman Rome was completely obliterated mm-hmm. during the Rent. Oh. Um, and it, in the in the fluff, it kind of goes into into what all happened, and if you get into the backstory, you know, you kind of know what happened and why and all that. Um, but they also have the Avian Guard, so you do have this you know secondary papal court in, that that was in France. Um, pl- but then they, of course, all of that started migrating to Venice because Venice has become the new center of, of society. Mm-hmm. and kind of central to the world cool cool uh yeah awesome uh, so i mean what would you say is the best way to actually get started into the game i mean is there a starter set you would recommend or okay so there's actually two different starter sets mm-hmm. um they recently and i think it was like for christmas last year type recently released escape from san Conciano. Mm-hmm. i'm pronouncing that right um and that is going to be your traditional GW style start, starter. Mm-hmm. It comes with eight, mo- uh, I think it's eight models. It basically comes with 50 ducat, approximately, sides, Guild and Rashar. Mm-hmm. The standard list is 100 ducats. Um, it comes with a 2x2 two two poster size mat to play on. Yep. Some uh, cardstock terrain pieces. Mm hmm. A card, some cardstock um, debris, um, both in water and out for the jumping. If it's in water, then you can you also get that free jump. So you, so you can use that instead of a bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it comes with stat cards. Oh, for the models that are in there. So that is one big thing about TT Combat is they try they try to have their starter sets do the um, Christmas Day what they call the Christmas Day rule of, they want it something that's under the tree, you can pull it out, open the box, quickly assemble the models, and be playing without having to go online, which all of the stats are online, they actually have an official uh, gang builder, and one of the things they do is balancing passes anytime they're focused on new models for a faction, they they look at the faction as it currently stands amongst the other factions and along with how the new models change the faction and how the community seems to be seeing the faction. And so they will do tweaking. So they try Um, and keep it sort of balanced. Exactly. And they also kind of try to look at where there were, you know, the whole community complaints. Uh, the the actual reason I don't play the community alert, which is the starter set for gifted, is the box of five models is exactly a hundred ducats, mm-hmm. and for me that's a little bit too few models on the board. Right. I tend to play horde armies. Mm-hmm. They actually, when they did the latest gifted um, redo, they tweaked the models to bring them down to ninety, so that you could at least pull in one more a sixth model to help with that being a little too small. Right. Um, 
But yeah, but the Escape from San Conciano, like I said, it's you know thirty five pounds uh, off of their website. That's very cheap. Uh, huh? um, yeah, all of the models in both starter sets I'm talking about are designed to be one piece models. They are resin models, mm-hmm. but they're pretty easy to assemble. Uh, I know. I know a lot of times. Games Workshop players um, kind of have traumatic flashbacks to resin models. It's not that type of resin. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I've worked with a lot of TT combat resin. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that the Escape from San Conciano comes with is it comes with the small rulebook, which is, which is the free PDF download that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't get that. Uh, the other starter set, which is the one I started with, and to be honest, if you're not just trying to dabble and you're seriously looking at it, it's the one I recommend, is the official Carnivale two-player starter box. Mm-hmm. It's going to be 65 pounds, and it comes with um, two full 100 ducat uh, lists. And when I say lists, I don't mean your traditional, well, this is the stuff nobody plays with, so we're going to throw it into the box. Yeah. I played the Rashar list. When I sat down and decided on my faction, one of the reasons I picked Rashar was as a TT agent, I wanted to make sure that there, that both starter sets were pres- present in my store because I knew people going to tournaments would see them. Mm-hmm. We had guild players. We didn't have Rashar players. I sat down. I built a list. I started going to see what models I needed to buy, and I realized the list I built was the exact list they put into the two-player starter for sure. Nice. Um, the guild I've looked at, I would not build that list. I still think it's a solid list. I still think people would play it. It just doesn't quite play the way I would play that particular faction. That's all. Right, yeah. So so, so, so it, it's not like each faction has only one way to play. Exactly. Yeah, they and they and they, it's also much. It, to be honest, um, the factions feel to me, to use a 40k term, a lot more like Space Marines, where, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you can play generic Space Marines, but if you play White Scars, they have the feel to them. Well, you know, if I'm playing the um, the Guild, I can play the Punzanellas. There's actually mm-hmm. two boxes for Punzanella. I can make an entire hundred ducat list of just Punzanella. That has a different feel. You know, so it's you know I can um, we've got a care we've got a player who really likes using the dog keeper and the dogs, mm-hmm. for example. Um, so yeah, so it's very flexible, and that's also part of that balancing is because when they if they add in models to a sub faction, they need to rebalance that sub faction to make sure that it doesn't overpower because of the new stuff. Right, fantastic. Um, so so, so they the are player, keeping an eye on out. They are keeping yeah. an eye on out. Oh yes, they definitely they definitely feel like they are trying to keep an eye on on everything because you know every every gamer knows whether you like it or not power creep is inevitable just the nature of the game new model gets thrown in and all of a sudden there's an interaction nobody expected and mm-hmm. that interaction dominates the game. Yeah. Um, the but the two player also comes with cards. Um, I will warn people the cards are out of date. They are perfectly fine. If you're playing the starter set and learning the rules, and you're playing those two lists against each other. There is no problem mm-hmm. with the cards. Once you start expanding into playing with more people, though, you will want to go out to the website. I checked yesterday, and they are both um, still 100 ducat lists, but there's some tweaks to some of the cards just over over time. Right, and they can, um, they're, they're available to download. Yes. Uh, you yeah. go to carnivalethegame.com. Mm-hmm. You'll see the gang builder, and on the gang builder, 
you can select a model and download just its card, or when you're in a faction, there's a link which will download a PDF that has all the cards for that faction in it. Nice. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Okay. so the two-player starter, it comes with nine one-foot square tiles. The standard board size is, is um, three by three. Mm-hmm. On one side of the tile, on one side of the tiles, it has a combination of water plus uh, dry land, which mm-hmm. are cobblestone pieces. The other side is just the water. So mm-hmm. TT Combat being an MDF terrain company, as you as you start buying it, if you decide to start buying MDF terrain, then you can just flip them over, use the water, and now you've got a nice water mat. Right. Um, it comes with cardstock buildings. They are different than what's in um, Escape from San Conciano because Conciano is newer. Those are a little bit more funky looking. Um, Two-player starter, a little bit more basic, still fully functional. Mm-hmm. I use them all the time when I need to. Um, it comes with a box of gubbins, which includes a set of dice, um, Conciano also comes with a set of dice. Comes with your templates, measuring sticks, uh, some basic scenarios, mm-hmm. and it and the two-player starter comes with the large rule book. Nice. So that's, that's not bad value for sixty-five pounds. No, it isn't. It is an excellent value if you're planning on playing Guild or Rishar. I highly recommend it because, to be honest, just looking, just trying to pull it up real quick. Um, you know, well, it'll take me too long. Um, you know, just the rule book and the dice. You know, if you want to use their D10s and the, and basically the gubbin box to get the templates, you're get, you're probably going to get close to that. But mm-hmm. um, once again, it is the Christmas it's the Christmas Day rule. Everything is playable out of the box. Single pose minis, glue them to the base. Um, so that's kind of how you know I recommend people starting. In addition. There, each faction has multiple boxes that make legal crews. Every faction has a faction game starter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have some additional boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to use that to lead into what may be your next question, which is additional resources. And there are, two, there are three main resources that I know of. Mm-hmm. Number one is the Carnivali fan Facebook group. Yep. A great bunch uh, of people. Yeah, I just joined that last night. <laughs> okay. Yep. You, know, you'll, you, you will see me all over that place whether you want to or not. Um, I'm not as active as I used to be, but I still try to be pretty active on there. Mm-hmm. So people can find me on there, and I am me, and I'll try to check the others. Um, the second place is a website called Venice by rent light that's r-e-n-t light mm-hmm. um it's a little defunct at the moment the information on there is still good um it will hopefully be getting new content shortly mm-hmm. uh the plague I, I actually that's actually my site and the plague kind of sapped a lot of my creativity but starting yeah. to see the um end of the light and starting to get back into the gaming mode so i'm hoping to start putting new articles up there in the near future um and one of the articles on there, I have gone through, at least at the time of the posting, every single box that you can buy for Carnivali, mm-hmm. and I've listed the ones that make legal forces, and at the time of the posting, the points in that box. Because there are right. some um, 
the army creation rules are you have to have one leader and then there are heroes and henchmen and you cannot have more heroes than you have henchmen. Right. So for example, the Vlad Dracul box doesn't meet the requirements because while Vlad is a leader, it has all three of his brides, which are heroes, and it doesn't have enough henchmen to cover three brides. Right. Um, so so that is the second resource that I recommend for beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, because I've got stuff up there, I've I've got an I've got a three part article about building a list where I go through and kind of do here's how I create the list, here's how I work with the resins, and I intentionally picked found models that had a lot of the common issues that you see with TT Combat resins, yeah, specifically so I could show you how to do with it, and then I've got something about basic painting. So all the way from um, the third resource is there's actually a podcast called Monsters in the Masks, Mm -hmm. which is a Carnivale dedicated podcast. Right, fantastic. Uh, So those are the three big ones, and like I said, they get me on Facebook or you know Donald Gaither at ttagents.ttcombat.com is my agent email. People are welcome to email me if they have questions. Um, I will warn people. for the next couple of weeks after this gets posted, basically until the middle of May 2020, no, April 2021, um, my work is going to be a little hectic, so I may be a little slow answering. Mm-hmm. You know, please forgive me for that. But you know, I'm always happy to talk people's ears off about Carnivale. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. And I think my last question would be, what's your favorite model in the game, whether that be in terms of sculpting or gameplay? So... I like some of the aesthetics. And mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, what brought me into this was actually the models. So mm-hmm. I think I've kind of got two. Uh, once you get past the Puntanella, just as a general, because I love the Puntanella's aesthetic, um, is Pan Lady, which I've already mentioned, which is in the Patrician's starter gang set. Mm-hmm. And then the alternate sculpt for the Scorpio Marksman. Now, mm-hmm. the Scorpio Marksman is this guy in full metal armor carrying a ballista and it's a large base model and in the normal sculpt there's a choir an altar boy standing in front of you and i made the joke i wanted to see the altar boy holding up the ballista as like a tripod Mm -hmm. and lewis just responded wait and then shortly thereafter so clearly it was already in the production line they released the alternate sculpt which is this guy in full armor holding a giant ballista with the altar boy in front holding it up like a tripod. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So, that's, that's brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for. So okay. thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. And um, we'll probably have to have you on again sometime to talk about Carnivale some more. Sure. It does sound like a fun game. And oh, definitely. If the girls hear this, they'll probably scowl at me for wanting to buy another game. You just need to show them the models and get them interested in it. And then you've already got people to play with. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us, right. Donald. No problem. Talk to you later. Hi, and uh, me and Megan uh, are joined by James Phoenician Turner from all the way up in Scotland. 
and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Warhammer Underworlds. I think the, the the title we've given this is sort of the story so far. Yeah. And James has sort of ran with that and created this whole segment, and I'm like, this looks incredible. <laughs> Hi everyone. Yeah. No. Um. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, and I'm I'm glad that the, you're happy with the segment. And actually, um, I've was uh, was thinking that um, once we're done, if there's anything you want to pull out from the text and, and share, I'd be happy to do that because there's it's a four-year-old game and there's quite a lot to go into. But that yeah. can seem quite overwhelming for people when you're trying to get into something uh, brand new. So yeah, I think I think the cool thing about Underworlds for me is that it's not just I mean yeah it is a very competitive minis game. They've created some minis and they were like we need a game to go with this, but. They have actually created a really interesting story to go along with it. Which is... Yeah, definitely. the The narrative is probably a bit lighter than some of the other games, but it does it fits in with the wider narrative of the Age of Sigmar universe. Uh, and the games themselves have got quite a fun narrative. Every warband's got a reason to be there, uh, which is quite cool as well. Yeah. So um, without further ado, what we'll do is we'll do what we do with it when we have anybody on for the first time, and we'll ask. A little bit about yourself, James. Where, 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 where have you come from in terms of the hobby? Um, how did you get started, and what do you play now, and what, what, what are you most enjoying? Um, so I've probably, I was vaguely peripherally aware of of Warhammer because there were models on a sh- on the shelf in a model shop when I was a kid. I was sort of about ten or eleven, but it wasn't until I was in my early teens and I was round at a friend's house. Uh, it was a chap called Chris, and I wish I knew where he was now, but I, I don't unfortunately. But I was round at round at Chris's house, and um, his dad had been on at him t- for ages to to talk, tidy up some mess that was in the garage. And in that <laughs> in that way that teenagers petulantly do, it was all right. I'll do it now then. So I followed him out to the garage and he starts chucking stuff into boxes and then pouring stuff into bin bags and he grabbed this box that was full of metal and plastic bits and i had no idea what any of this stuff really was but i was like whoa you're chucking that out and he was like yeah i don't want it anymore so i i went home with a big cardboard box full of things that i had no idea what they were and a handful of white dwarf magazines and rapidly started figuring out what everything was and that was probably well, it was in the mid 90s so it would have been second edition um and then rapidly discovered the stores and used to hang out in milton Keynes and northampton games workshops quite a lot um very much into 40k initially um the sort of the sci-fi aspect was what appealed a lot but the fantasy stuff was kind of cool i just never really dived into that um never really played to start with though was much more of a painter and collector um fell out of the hobby probably late 90s as I was coming into my late teens um I think the last things I bought then were the some of the inquisitor the 54 millimeter scale inquisitor models because they were really cool um and then when when I left home um so it fell fell out the hobby and was living in Birmingham and wandered past Birmingham Games Workshop one afternoon and was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, and I picked up a couple of novels. I think it was one of the Gaunt's Ghost novels that I read and um, was just sort of plunged straight back into it and have been doing it ever since. So it's probably been about 15, 20 years, I think. Um, and along the way, I've probably tried out most things. Um, but at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge uh, 30K fan, um, but also play Warhammer Underworlds, love Blood Bowl and um, Necromunda N17. 
Um, what else? Uh, Aeronautica, that's pretty cool. Aeronautica Imperialis. Um, yeah, we're going to give that a try this we month. Are, yeah. uh, cool. Because I, I bought both sets but not actually played it yet. <laughs> it's Once you wrap your head around the hexes, which is a bit jarring to start with, it's actually really cool and it's as fast paced as it looks like it's just kind of in the same way that, that i think underworlds uses the hexes to free up your you know it's very very clear what your movement options are if you've got mm-hmm. a board with hexes on it um so yeah um aeronautica the models are cool for that and adeptus titanicus that's a, another one that uh, i really enjoy um but also briefly flirting with getting into aos and uh, middle earth strategy battle game um I'm, I'm a massive nerd and I'll give most miniature things a try, I suppose. <laughs> Don't blame um, me. And, uh, but, but mostly, I mean, the last year or so, obviously gaming's not been very possible. So I've been um, doing a lot more painting mm-hmm. um, and trying to push my painting or the quality of my painting a wee bit more uh, than I have been for a while, which has actually been really cool. Um, sort of exploring different techniques and trying different things out and, um, I was super pleased last year when um, I think I'd painted up one of the Necromunda models that had been painted by Drew Pallis, and he commented on it on Instagram saying he really liked it. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, that is cool. That's cool. Yeah, I've noticed you've done a lot of Necromunda painting over the last year. Well, it's it's one of the things, I think when, when we chatted at Christmas, Michael, I was saying to you, one of the things that's quite nice about having a small or a single project is that you can explore stuff and not have to worry about replicating it and the great thing with the necromodo models was because each one was a one-off i might have been using a similar palette of colors or painting of the leather in a similar way but i didn't have to worry about duplicating that across a tactical squad so it was quite liberating to be sort of like i really like this green but i never have to worry about painting it exactly the same way again (laughs) (laughs) yeah very very true so uh let's uh let's uh delve into the meat and potatoes of this and i think i'm gonna let uh, you wanted to explain a little bit about how the game works first of all so i'm gonna hand over more or less to megan because she's the total noob in this aspect so okay i think she wants to sort of uh ask some questions because uh I always find, good to me. Works, I, f- I find this t- stuff works better when it's a, when it's someone a little bit more experienced sort of discussing it with someone who knows less yeah then i okay. don't have to pretend i know nothing <laughs> well i tell you what then i'll i'll be up front megan and say if if you're not clear on something ask you know if you want me to repeat anything or break it down please do because i think there's that tendency sometimes to assume the person knows yeah. what you're talking about so yeah, yeah well, i, I tend to go the opposite and assume she doesn't know and she's always telling me <laughs> off for mansplaining yeah. <laughs> except I'll, 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 that time when i introduced you to the concept of the warg that that was <laughs> She, she was like, you're not going to explain wags to me. And it, it was like, well, it's an orc thing. And she she thought I was talking about, you know, wolves and that. From ah, right. Tolkien. Yep. <laughs> well, similar named. Similar name, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but basically, um, what is Warhammer Underworlds, people who don't know? So it's, uh, it's a... a, a Boards, uh, card, dice, and miniatures game, uh, which I think I, I like to think is easy to learn but difficult to master. And I think that's the trait of a good game is that you can pick it up and get the basics quite easily and then enjoy honing your skills with it. Um, it's about four years old and has been through four seasons, which I'll talk a wee bit, a bit 
more about as we go through, but started with Warhammer Underworld Shadespire, uh, and then Night Vault, Beastgrave, and most recently Direchasm. Uh, and there's been a couple of other expansions to the game uh, along the way as well. Um, but uh, yeah, you take control of a warband, which is uh, a small handful of models um, all within the same faction. So it could yeah. be skeletons or orcs or um, a troll and some squeaks. And you build a deck of cards and try to out master out maneuver and outwit your opponent at scoring the most glory by the end of the game awesome cool so uh yeah i have i've played like one game of it before um haven't gone back to it not sure why because it was really enjoyable yeah and you did kick my bottom quite convincingly i did i tend to do that with games that i've not played much before beginner's luck i have lots of <laughs> I was playing the corn um, blood reavers, mm-hmm. Gans, so they're they're not very good anyway. Ah, there you go. Blame, blame you, Gans. <laughs> you were having, you did have stormcast, and stormcast are a little are quite easy to to play with. No, no, not honestly. Your skill was quite good. I'm 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 playing it down here, but. <laughs> um. Myself. Well, it's it's interesting you talk about the different ways that the warbands play because it's something we can touch on as we go through as well because yeah. there are I think there's a wide variety of play styles within the game and so if you favour a particular way of playing there's probably a warband for you. I think that's probably the good thing about there being so many different warbands going on. <laughs> hone down to which one suits your play style best. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that that's uh, happened as the sets have been released is that the, the Games Workshop and the developers have, have said, you know, one of the things that will remain valid throughout the lifetime of the game is the warbands and the cards that are associated with their faction. So they might not be hyper competitive but you can still use some of the the war well you can still use ev- any of the war bands um whatever stage the game is at there are some different sort of um organized play modes which restrict which war bands you can use but if you're playing on the kitchen table with some friends or at your local club uh it, you know you you can take a season one war band up against a season four war band and see how they get on that's always good yeah so the the basic mechanics of the game how does that work so it's played over three rounds, um, and each round uh, you get four activations per player. So across the, the whole game, you've got 12 chances to do uh, an action. Um, and, and that could be something like you know moving or charging one of your fighters or putting them on guard to make them more defensive or, or drawing a card from your uh, one of your decks. Um, and... Uh, but, it, but there's also different phases within the turn. So you have uh, the action phase and then you have what's called the power step, which is where you can start using cards to try and influence the way things will work. Um, and that adds like a whole other dimension to the game. Both players get to pitch in in the power step. So you could have what looks like a pretty cunning plan and then your opponent can trip you up by playing a card or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and the goal of the game uh, is to be the player with the most glory points at the end, um, which is actually pretty cool because it means that you can lose all your fighters and still win a game. That's, that's kind of rare, but 
um, you don't necessarily win by just wiping out your opponent's warband. You've, you've got some objectives that you'll be trying to score as well. Okay. Um, and then one of the other things that's pretty cool is that um, each fighter's card, which has got their stats on it, is double-sided because um, the fighters in warbands can do what's called, uh, or they can get what's called inspired. So um, by fulfilling a condition like killing a certain number of uh, your opponent's fighters or, or maybe scoring um, objectives, you can get a, sort of a boost as your fighters, you know, get, get the momentum going, their blood's up and, and they get better at fighting or more defensive or unlock some spells. Um, and each warband tends to inspire in a different way. So that kind of maybe plays into um it's generally they're quite fluffy so if i remember right the corn warband michael that you were talking about they get inspired yeah. by their um being I, enemy fighters out of action well no it's i think it's anyone dying if i'm that's not. right i think as it's, as, it's, as a, someone it's a, dies they're like oh we're yeah. inspired and that fits with kind of you know them being a coronate um blood focused uh faction and and um it doesn't matter whether it's yours or your opponent's fighters who's dead because corn doesn't care where the blood and skulls come from so this sort of twists that play into the the fluff of the faction that the warband comes from awesome awesome so um you went through um the glory points yeah so how do you earn the glory points so there's, there's a number of ways that the easiest one probably is um, killing one of your opponent's fighters. Um, and one of the new introductions actually with the most recent season is if you kill a fighter that's got more than six wounds, you get two glory points because bringing down a bigger, heavier fighter is is um, more uh, glory worthy than killing a, a more fragile one. Yeah, um, but uh, the main method of scoring glory is to complete objectives. So when, when you play the game, you've got two decks of cards. One of them is your power deck, and that's got things like spells and, and tricks and traps in them. Um, and the other one is your objective deck. And this is a, a deck of 12 cards that you put together yourself. Um, and it will consist of a variety of objectives. So it might be holding ground or holding uh, specific points on the table. It might be uh, moving in a particular way or um, maybe holding ground in your half of the board and your opponent's board. But when you complete the conditions on them, either immediately, which is that's a surge objective, or at the end of a, a turn, which is sort of a, a, an end of turn objective, you will get a number of points roughly equal to the difficulty of fulfilling the objective um, so I think there was there was one called Annihilation, which was pretty big in the early seasons, which was wiping out your entire your opponent's entire warband. And I think you got five glory for that because it it was tricky to do, but you'd earn five glory points if you've managed to kill an entire warband by the end of the game. Yeah, it was a, it was a it was a big sort of it was a big ask to do it. Yes, but if you did it, awesome. big payoff. Big yeah. payoff. Um, and obviously, when you're constructing your objective deck, you'll need to think about sort of the strengths and weaknesses of your warband. So if you've got slow fighters, you probably don't want to be looking at movement based objectives um, unless you're confident that you could you can pull it off. Um, if you've got relatively fragile fighters, you maybe not want to go for sort of hyper aggressive ones. Um, but I think one of the, the beautiful things about the game is that each warband's got multiple ways to play it. So um, you can really uh, sort of tweak them in directions that you might not expect. 
Um, and the deck building is a, a, it's an aspect of the game I really enjoy because I think there's something rewarding about coming up with an idea and then seeing if it plays out and tweaking it a wee bit, changing some of the cards up a bit yeah. and then playing a bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Definitely. It's, definitely, it's very, very fun. So you've mentioned before about the the idea of blocks, rotations, and game mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe we could have a little bit of a touch on that. Sure, yeah. Um, so um, blocks and rotation is, is something that people who play other card games might be familiar with, but... Um, and Megan, I don't know if you if you play any sort of anything like magic or, or anything like that. I haven't, but um, I'm sort of aware of some okay. of the rules. Yeah. Um, well, so essentially, what was decided um, by the developers was um, as the third season of Underworlds was was coming towards being released. Um, the developers, well, Games Workshop announced that the game going forward for competitive play would consist of blocks of two seasons. So that would be the <coughs> most recently released one and then the season immediately preceding it. So at the moment, um, the active block is Dire Chasm and Beastgrave with Nightfall and Shadespire rotating out. So their cards can't be used in competitive tournaments of a particular format. But again, if you're playing at home uh, and or if you're playing at a club and everybody's in agreement, you can use any cards in your collection. Uh, there's there's sort of no holds barred. Um, but essentially what that means, I mean, th- th- there were some people who were a bit unhappy about it when it was announced. But having played a few card games myself um, already, um, the idea behind rotation and restricting the number of cards that are in active play means that you can, as a developer, you can push the design space without having to worry about 800 cards and how they interact together. Um, it's also an opportunity to maybe reprint a card but tweak the way that it works. So if if you've got, um, in, in early seasons, there was a card called Healing Potion, which was seen in a lot of decks um, and was quite consistent in healing damage. That rotated out. But that then means there's room for the developers to do something different with a healing mechanic going forward and not have to rely on the way that it was before. Um, and as I say, if, if you're just playing in, in a friendly game with, with folks, then you can use any cards that, that you want yeah. to. Yeah, um, the, 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 the problem is if you leave stuff in for too long, I mean, we, we saw it with uh, 40k back in the day when you had rules in there and codexes that were so old. Mm-hmm. And the way they interacted with any stuff, especially when edition changes happened, yeah, it, it got kind of like crazy. Some of the things that people could do. Definitely. I mean, the, the other thing that I think is quite good with the rotation is that it reduces the buy-in for new players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so, if if you were wanting to play competitively, you would only need to buy sort of two blocks of stuff at a time um if if you're one of those folks like me who's been into it since the start you've got boxes overflowing with cards and you've got warbands everywhere and um and a, and a cupboard full of well a pile of plastic that you haven't touched but i think that's part and parcel <laughs> of this hobby really um yeah she's giving me a, a harsh look here <laughs> we've all got the cupboard of shame or the the shame pile but um i'll, I'll give you the look michael but some of that pile is mine <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, it, it reduces the buy-in for new players if you want them to play competitively. And it means that you're not going to have to worry about chasing down an obscure card from three years ago if you want to keep keep moving forward. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out here when you said obscure cards that 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 is actually it's a that everything you buy is set. There's no yes, randomization. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So you buy masses of other cards to add to the game. Yeah. No, no, no. So the release model is quite nice in that you each season has a core set which contains two warbands and uh, decks of cards that can can be used by those warbands and then a selection of universal cards and then each other expansion throughout the season will include uh, a warband and their cards and then a few more universal cards so by the end of the season you've got a pool of i think it's expanded again so it's something like 600 uh, cards in total for for dire chasm um but you don't need to chase down like an, a, a card from another expansion it's not sort of blind buying blind packs like magic or yeah. or um star wars destiny or anything like that it's a fixed uh fixed set of cards and a fixed location for where those cards are uh through the release schedule yeah and you can even go on the website and preview the cards so you're not going in blind saying i don't know what i'm going to have here if everything's going to be useful yes that's and, and that's that's been a really useful aspect as um as, as we've seen games workshop become more interactive over the last few years um they've they've fallen into a a really good habit of previewing the season and the war bands that will be in that season and then in the run-up to the releases showing um they used to be called spoilers um when you got pictures of the cards um particularly in in other card-based games but actually i think it's really cool to see what's coming because you can as you say there you can figure out you could plan purchases uh, and yeah. you can see what the what's coming as the season shapes up um and then those cards are added to um an online deck builder um there's an official one for for games workshop there's a couple of unofficial ones as well and as you say that means you can you can almost try before you buy and and figure out what you want to do with your decks uh, and then purchase the war bands you want Awesome. So, so what about the uh, the different variants of the game? Uh, have there? So, as you say, there are there are some that use different sort of pools of cards, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So, so championship is is the sort of main competitive one, and there's there's a, a varying level of tournaments uh, available to you. So, you could have like a local store based tournament, but there's things like the Grand Masters, which is a sort of the best of the best, and they play at Warhammer World and there's fortune and glory awaits you that uses cards and boards from the two active block mm-hmm. um of of releases and it has what's called a forsaken and restricted or far list so that's cards that are banned or controlled um so forsaken cards can't be used in the game at all and that might be where there's an interaction that wasn't intended or it's a card that's featured in every single deck and therefore it's being taken out of the game to allow more space for people to design decks without having that card consistently mm-hmm. um and then restricted cards you can only have three in total between the two decks of cards you have um, but any war band from the uh, any season and their faction specific cards can be used in that format there's vanguard which uses the cards boards and war bands from the current season of underworlds only so vanguard at the moment consists of diachasm and any war bands that are available for that there's Arena Mortis, which is really cool. I haven't had a chance to try it fully yet, but I, basically, I literally just bought that this month. I think, I mean, it's a really cool idea. Um, 
and I think it's a way of diving into the game without fully diving into the game. Sorry, Megan, I just cut you off there. I was just saying that's why it sounds familiar. He just bought it. <laughs> ah, right. Um, so that one, you pick a single fighter, and it's more like a multiplayer, multiplayer gladiator match. So you see who survives at, at the end. So there's still um, a fixed number of rounds and activations, um, but you win by being the sort of the last person alive and having the most glory, I think. Um, and then finally, there's there's relic, which is the sort of no holds barred, any warbands, any cards, any boards, um, and that's the sort of uh, everything in your collection is is on the table. Um, so for folks who've been playing since season one, um, you can really go to town and, and throw in all the cards that you really like or um, some of the older war bands and see how they get on. Oh. Fantastic. So you said before about the different play styles for, um, for playing the game. Could you maybe talk us through those? Yeah, sure. So the, the, the sort of um, four main play styles for the war bands, although some of them will... Um, drift across them but um there's sort of uh, the first one is aggro which is really aggressive play so it's mainly where you're focusing on killing your opponent's fighters and objectives around killing your opponent's fighters or causing damage oh, cool. um yeah like <laughs> like corn yeah corn are, are pretty pretty aggro um but also things like um i'm trying to think the witch elves warband they can be fairly aggro um and stormcast if you can get them moving, they can be pretty pretty aggro as well. Um, then you've got hold objectives. So that's one of one of the aspects of the setup of the game is that between the two of you, you put down four objective tokens on the board. Um, yeah. And typically with hold objective, you're going to be trying to hold those objective tokens or hold a number of objective tokens to score glory, or um, you know cover cover ground and then hold objectives. Um, You've also got control, um, and control typically does shenanigans and things and uh, uses ploy cards and tricks to keep your opponent from doing what they want to do. Uh, and then finally, you've got flex, which is a mixture of any two or more of the above play styles. So um, let me see off the top of my head. Uh, the worm spat, which is the Nurgle warband, um they they can be aggressive uh they can also hold objective and they can be controlled so they're quite a flexible warband and depending on the way that you build your decks and play with them you can sort of you can do what's called teching into but you can you can play into a particular play style with the deck construction and the abilities of a warband mm-hmm. and that's not to say that you must play them in that way so you wouldn't necessarily have to play corn aggressively you could try for objectives but you might struggle because that's not their primary play style one of the interesting things we've seen as the seasons have gone forward and um michael if you're picking up diochasm you'll see this if if you guys try it out is that the warbands are becoming a little bit more balanced in terms of being able to access multiple play styles intuitively rather than being sort of definitely slanted towards one and being a bit more difficult to pull into others um and I think it's a really interesting development because obviously some warbands still, so the um, the Oryx, the new the, the new Oryx and Beastgrave are still a very aggressive warband, but there's a little bit of hold objective play in there as well so that they're not fully one-dimensional. Yeah, just cool. painted them up the other week as well. <laughs> That'll be fun. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so obviously we, we've touched on the fact that there's a deck building 
aspect of the game going on here. Um, I think we're going to come back in a future episode and cover that a bit more in depth. But, I mean, in the meantime, what, you know, are you able to touch a little bit on that? Because I think yeah, sure. I mean, very foreign to most Warhammer players. Yeah, yeah it's it certainly... I mean, remember the first time I actually sat down with um, a Warband expansion and a sort of a pile of cards and thought, how, how does this even work? Um, and it can seem really quite daunting to start with. Um, but thankfully, in the core rules, there's some really clear direction on how you build your decks. So um, I won't I won't waffle too long. And if you're going to come back and focus on it, then that's that's even better. But essentially, you've got two uh, decks of cards. Uh, one is your power card deck. Um, oh, it's actually yeah, power cards, um, and that consists of of gambit spells, tricks, traps, things that you can do to influence the game. Uh, and then that can have a minimum of 20 unique cards in it. So one of the, one of the things that, that that's quite good is with some card games, you can have multiples of the same card, which obviously builds the consistency or the, the likelihood consistency of being able to draw those cards from a, a deck. Um, Underworlds, it's always unique. So you can only ever have one copy of the same card in a deck. Um, so your power deck has to have a minimum of 20 unique cards and no more than half of them can be gambits. Um, so you also got upgrades, which will be things that will boost your fighters' abilities and characteristics. So it might be making them tougher or faster or uh, more defensive capabilities like adding armor. Um, it might be better weapons. Um, and then your other deck is your objective deck, and that's 12 unique uh, objective cards and they can be either universal cards so that's ones that any warband can use or what's called faction specific so they're specifically tailored to your warband and each card and you'll go into this further in the deck but each card's got a little icon in one of the corners that tells you what it is and whether it's tied to a faction or not so it's, it's quite clear when you're putting them together whether you can do that or not well yeah the um the, the actual uh iconography is very clear and straightforward i found personally mm-hmm. Um, so when, when you're building your objective deck, as I was saying earlier, you probably want to think about how your warband is going to, to sort of fulfill the conditions on them when you're putting them together. But another one of the really great aspects of, of the game as it's come forward through the seasons is that the all of the expansions for warbands and the core sets themselves will contain a starter deck for that warband um it's not optimized but it will give you a flavor of all of the possible things that they can do and it will have enough upgrades and enough power cards for you to be able to use them consistently going forward so you don't need to build a deck the first time you play but after you've played the first couple of games and megan you might see this as if you if you come back to it you might sort of pick up the stormcast and think well i like how that worked last time but i'm not so sure about that card and then you start swapping things about so you don't need to build a deck right off the bat but as you get more familiar with things then you know the possibility opens up that's great yeah it's good that you do you have something to start with mm-hmm. you can then build on rather than have to approach from from scratch at the beginning which yes. can always be daunting yeah absolutely and i mean michael you mentioned about dreadfane so dreadfane was a, a sort of um a starter set in that it had two war bands and two pre-made decks uh, in it. And there's a, a starter set, a specific starter set coming soon, which was previewed a, a wee while ago, which again is two war bands and then pre-constructed decks 
for those warbands. So it, it, the, I suppose the idea is to break down the, the barrier or the challenge of giving the game a try by removing the worry of deck building and getting you to try the game out, first of all. Yeah. The, yeah, they are. I was, yeah, D- Dreadfang was sort of like an exclusive American release, and then we just got the gangs and their cars. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, which was very cool. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, so, um, obviously, I know the story is a big deal, and we wanted to sort of touch on the story. So, um, I guess that's, uh, that's where we go in, and we can sort of touch on the wall bands each as they sort of go along, can't we? So, mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, as, as I said, before the um the sort of the narrative well, I'm, I'm actually i'm just before i dive too deep into the narrative of, of, of underworlds one of the things that i really like about the age of sigmar universe is that the mortal realms are quite unknown and unexplored at, at the, this point in time there's there's quite a lot of detail as if you sort of read the core rule book but it's a universe that can be expanded into with new races and new ideas. And, and um, we've seen that with some of the releases like the Ossiarch Bone Reapers and the um, Lumineth Realm Lords, um, the Head Knights of Slanish uh, models and, and that kind of thing. Um, but the other cool thing is that because it's fairly wide open, it's almost a realm or, or a world where anything can happen mm-hmm. yeah. um, and frequently does uh, as well. Um, so so with, that, with that said, um, so yeah, for, for anybody not not familiar, um, in uh, in the Age of Sigmar universe, there are eight mortal realms, I think, which correspond to the Winds of Magic, um, and uh, in uh, in the, the well the edge of a place called the Desert of Bones, which is in the realm of Shyish, which is where death magic is prevalent, there was a city that was ruled by a group called the Cataphranes, who through magic and technology managed to create a substance called shade glass, which um, allowed them to sort of keep the souls of their dead alive in mirrors throughout the city. And uh, that preserved the knowledge and the power that they had for future generations and sort of ushered in this period of prosperity, the likes of which the uh, city had never seen before and their fortunes flourished. But Unfortunately, the prosperity drew the gaze of Nagash, who's the god of death and who was uh, ruling Shyish. And anybody who knows Nagash knows he doesn't like to be cheated out of souls. Uh, he was angered at being denied this uh, this tithe that he believed he was entitled to. And so he used his pretty impressive magic powers to cast the city of Shadespire back out of reality and into a space between the realms. Uh, and it sort of trapped the cataphranes and the inhabitants of the city in a living nightmare for the rest of eternity. So there's a sort of remaining shattered husk of the city in Shyish, but uh, it's no longer limited by the laws of physics such as they are in the in the realms. And it's become an impossibly vast and hopelessly tangled maze of chambers, halls and towers. If you think of those paintings of uh, stairs and towers and everything going in opposite directions, yeah. that's kind of how it looks. And um you know, as as has always been the way, uh, the temptation of fortune and glory draws explorers of brave or foolhardy people and warriors of all races to come and try and pick over the ruins. But if you venture too far into the ruins, you'll find yourself actually trapped and transported to the metaphysical city of Shadespire. And um, you can't die there. So you're sort of trapped in this everlasting cycle of, of dying and being reborn uh, and an eternity of bloodshed, which was where we found ourselves entering into season one, which was set in the city of Shadespire. Um, 
and you guys are both familiar with the core set as it's got mm-hmm. Garrick's Reavers, yeah. the Core Knight, and Steelheart's Champions, the uh, Stormcast mm-hmm. Eternals. So um, I think maybe if I just sort of run run through a wee bit of about each of the core bands for the core set and then sort of touch on the other ones that were in season one, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah, that yeah, sounds yeah, great. Sounds good. Yep. So so as we've alluded before, Garrick's Reavers are devoted to the uh, Chaos God of Corn. So they're they're quite lightly armored but heavily armed. Lots of axes and chains on these guys. Um, they're a, a warband that's got five models and they can hit quite hard and fast, but they're a little bit fragile. Um, they don't wear a lot of armor, um, being sort of uh, coronate madmen. Um, most of their objectives are focused around killing their ants rather than holding objectives, which is pretty fitting uh, for followers of the Blood God. Um, and the warband actually inspires when any three fighters are taken out of action um, because corn cares not from where the blood flows. Uh, Steelheart's champions, by contrast, are sort of paragons from cast eternals who were sent to Shadespire by Sigmar himself to find out more about Shade Glass. Um, again, uh, unfamiliar, the Stormcast Eternals sort of forged by lightning into being heroes who are a bit like Space Marines, I suppose, but let's not go there. Um, when they're when they're reforged, so when when they die, they're teleported back to uh, I think it's Azir is the name of the realm, but they're teleported back and then reforged and sent back into battle. Um, but sort of disturbingly, the more times they're reforged, the less of a personality and the less uh, humanity or or um, uh, sort of cares they have. Um, and Sigmar is a wee bit concerned by this. So sort of thinking about whether or not Shade Glass might be able to stop them from losing their souls, he's to Steelheart and his champions to explore the city. Um, they've got three fighters, uh, and they're led by Steelheart himself. Um, they're a lot, uh, and they all inspire when they successfully roll a block or a critical in their defense rolls. So you need. So that was the two. In the core set, uh, uh, which was the first uh, of these, came with models, fighter cards, and power and objective cards that added to the set. Um, so, at the same time, so this was a dual release. You had Iron Skulls Boys, which were four Oryx who were trapped in Shadespire after wandering in in search of loot. Uh, at first, they were trying to you know find a way to escape and get back to. Uh, to Oryx love doing, but then actually an eternity of bloodshed and battle kind of has a certain appeal to Green, so um, they stuck around. Um, they're fairly unsubtle. Um, they're definitely geared towards getting stuck in, and um, and they inspire by taking damage, uh, which actually I, I really like the warband uh, and the idea of them getting angrier as, as stuff tried to hurt them. Yeah. Um, the next ones was the yeah, yeah. Uh, and as, as I was saying earlier you know I, I really do think that the um, the inspire conditions do kind of build into the the fluff behind the warband so the auric one was was really cool um, yeah. there's a card if I remember right in season one which allowed you to basically sort of a, a shower of, of um, glass fell from the ceiling and would wound um, everything on the table. So if you were an Auric player, it was a fantastic way of getting your fighters inspired because you could just make the glass drop on them and they'd get riled up and get stuck in. Yep. That sounds um, great. 
the Sepulchral Guard, they're what remains of some of Shadesbar's very unfortunate inhabitants, and the leader of the warband was once the or is the former Lord Marshal of the city. So they've got seven fighters and they can actually resurrect some of their fighters, which is what gets them inspired. They're a bit more tricky to play because obviously with seven fighters, but only four activations, you need to have quite a good consistent game plan. But because there's lots of fighters, they're quite good at holding objectives rather than just killing things. Um, next up, we had the Chosen Axes, who are four Fire Slayer Dwarves. Mm. Um Massive mohawks and axes. Um, they failed to keep an oath to keep their city safe. Um, so plunging into Shadespire in search of uh, fortune, glory and a good death. Um, they're very slow, but they're quite good at attacking or defending. And they inspire by holding objectives, which I suppose plays into the dwarf or the, the um, you know, the, the aspect of dwarves being treasure seekers. Mm-hmm. Um so they're, they're quite good for holding objectives and controlling the board space. Um, next up was Spike Claw's Swarm. So that was five very fast and agile Skaven. Um, and three of them can be resurrected, kind of representing the, the tide of vermin that sort of, uh, the infestation of Skaven brings. They're led by Scritch Spike Claw. Um, and I can't remember his name, but he also had like a lieutenant who um, was desperate for Scritch to get killed so he could take over the warband. Um, oh, yeah, right. and I so remember he, his name, but yeah. That, that uh, but but sort of very, Skaven, very, very Skaven-esque of, of a plotting second-in-command who couldn't wait for his leader to fall down a hole or get stuck on a spike or something. Um, they inspire when they're chosen the target of a ploy card which again is quite you know skaven are quite tricksy in uh, in that way they're very um uh, very uh, fragile but um, they could be used very aggressively um and there were some, <laughs> some very cool uh, grand clash champions who built fantastically aggressive skaven decks but because again because they've got quite a lot of fighters they're good for holding objectives too mm-hmm. Um, next up, uh, we had Magor's Fiends, who were also Cornate. Um, and you can see here the kind of the parallel of, um, sort of version one of Age of Sigmar had the Stormcast versus the forces of Corn. Um, so that, that kind of plays into season one here as well. And so they're um, the heavily armored devotees of Corn. Um, so they're a bit slower, but they hit harder and they're a lot more durable. They've got four fighters. One of them is a flesh hound of corn, and they're very suited to aggro. And they inspire when they make a successful a successful attack action. So they're another one that you really kind of want to get stuck in with. Uh, and then finally, for season one, there was the Far Striders. It's another band of three fighters of Stormcast Eternals, but these guys are vanguard hunters. So they were the first to come with long-ranged attacks because they've got bolt storm pistols uh, and their leader Sanson Farstride has got a, a giant star falcon which can peck at people as well. Nice. Um, it's a nice bird. It, it is. Um, and sort of rewarding you for aggressive movement because the Farstriders or the, the Vanguard Hunters are, are scouts. Um, so they inspire by moving into the uh, your opponent's territory. Um, but they're they're not particularly fast like the other Stormcast, they're, they're not super fireable in the play styles. So that wrapped up season one. Um, 
And then a short time later, and again, tied into the sort of wider narrative of Age of Six, the um, spell unleashed by uh, Nagash that uh, caused the Necroquake um, kind of tore across the reality and the fabric of the realms and even the spaces in between them. And in the, the city of Shadespire, the effects were felt in the opening of what was called the Night Vault. So it's like a cavernous undercity of catacombs beneath the city. Uh, and Night Vault was season two of the, uh, the game. The core set again came with two warbands, one of which was called the Thorns of the Briar Queen and the other Stormsire's Curse Breakers. Um, anybody who has been collecting Mortal Realms will probably be familiar with these warbands because uh, I think they were included in those collections. Night Vault yep. be groundbreaking because it introduced magic and lethal hexes into the game for the first time. So um, lethal hexes are spaces on the board which if you move through them or are pushed into them you take damage so it introduced a new way of taking down opponents fighters or if you were playing with the orcs a new way of getting inspired because you could run through a lethal hex and inspire one of your fighters um so yeah the fire queen led the uh, thorns of the briar queen um she was once a very very powerful uh, magic um, of death magic mage but she was condemned to haunt the night vault for failing to conquer Shadespire when Nagash ordered her to do so so they've got seven night haunt fighters that inspire by being next to enemy fighters the Briar Queen's a level two wizard which is pretty good um, so as as with many games there's sort of tiers to the magic ability level one is uh, means they're a wizard level two is a more powerful wizard and you can get up to level three with some upgrades which is quite powerful um, and because they're ghosts being Nighthorn, they can move through lethal blocked and occupied hexes as if they were empty because ghosts don't care. Just makes um, sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the um, mix objective and uh, tricky to take down because they're ethereal. So, you know, you have to really, really, well, you have to make sure that they're dead because they're already dead. Yeah. Um, Picking up on the further, um, Stormsire's uh, Curse Breakers were um, a warband of night encounters who were chosen by Sigmar to investigate the Cataphrane Curse and see if we could break it or it could be broken. Um, accompanied by another two night encounters of the Sacrosanct Chamber, there's three of them in total. They're all wizards and, and they inspire by successfully casting a spell. So like the other Stormcast Warbands, it's quite tough and quite slow, but they were quite powerful for much of the Night Vault season because they could all cast uh, spells. Um, so that rounded out the core set. And then there were a number of other expansions. Um, one of the things that will become clear as we go through is that you can see sort of some of the niches being fleshed out and the gods of the Chaos Pantheon all kind of getting their own dedicated uh, warbands. So the next um next up actually are devoted to Zinch and they're the eyes of the night. Awesome. Five fighters and sorry. Awesome, just saying it's awesome. <laughs> um, well, they, they were yeah. <laughs> they they were really cool because they, they had a, a mix of fighters in them. So they're led by um their leader Vortimus, who's quite powerful, uh, casting spells, and he can summon a blue horror that becomes a brimstone. And kill it so as long as you keep him alive you can just keep summoning this horror back again um they're quite orientated towards control 
and most of their fight is inspired by making a successful, successful ranged attack because they're spells, uh, they can cast spells as well. And they also have a, a Zangor called Kacharik, who, um, if he's standing next to somebody who can successfully cast a spell, get inspires. Um, so yeah, really playing into the sort of Zinchian aspect of, of magic and trickery and um, uh, horrors, <laughs> I suppose. Um, next up were Zarbag's Gits, who mm. are the largest warband in the game so far. Uh, they've got nine fighters, um, seven goblins and two squigs. So led, led by Zarbag, who's a wizard, but they're as squishy as you'd think goblins would be. <laughs> um, but also they inspire when you've got three glory points, um, which again plays into, I suppose, the, uh, the goblin seeking treasure aspect. Um, but they've also got um, a guy called who's a fanatic and anybody who remembers Warhammer Fantasy Battle of Old um, will remember the sort of wind them up and go with goblin fanatics where you'd just sort of unleash night goblin fanatics from bigger units and they'd career off around the battlefield mangling just about everything while well, Snurk works in kind of the same way um, and there's every possibility that he will smash your opponent to bits or you if you're unlucky because it's a giant whirling cannonball on a chain it's not really accurate. Um, they sound a bit unwieldy with nine fights. Yeah, he's an absolute, absolute lunatic. Um, and I, I'm, I was really pleased to see that they put that aspect of the uh, the night goblins in because fanatics are, I think, they're just a core aspect of night goblins, really. Um, so, yeah, nine, nine fighters uh, seems a bit unwieldy, especially because you've only got four activations a turn, but they've got some unique trips, tricks with movement actions and reactions so they can sort of up on you and stab you with lots of pointed sticks which is very very green skin i think mm-hmm. um the godsworn hunt they're really cool uh, they're dark oath barbarians so they were kind of th- these guys appearance was kind of preempted by the dark oath chieftain in uh silver tower was it steel tower that's silver tower that's one and then with malign portents i think there was a dark queen warrior queen yeah, dark um, so the, yeah, um, so th- they are sort of very Conan-esque in their appearance, I think. Um, six fighters, one of whom uh, is is a, a dog called Grawl, uh, and in lots of online communities, he was known as the goodest boy uh, for a wee while. Um, they draw on some of the influences of, of the other Chaos War bands and they kind of bring a mix of ranged and melee fighters. So there's there's one who can cast a spear, there's one who's got a bow, but they're not particularly tough. Uh, they get inspired when they've got an upgrade applied into devotees of Chaos. So um, they're, they're treading the path of glory, which is with, you know, when they start acquiring glory, they get inspired. Um, they can be quite difficult to play because they are quite squishy, but the models are absolutely awesome. Uh, oh, yeah, and some yeah. of the best models in the game. Yeah, when but... you get used to their fragile playstyle, I think they they were they were really fun to play because they had a variety of ways you could play them. Um, and they had this unique feature in the deck where you could basically tell your opponent what you were going to try and do, and then if you managed to achieve that, you scored an additional glory point. Um, so you could swear an oath that you were going to kill a specific fighter or uh, do a specific thing and if you managed to do that you got extra glory because you told your opponent you were going to do it 
um, which was quite fitting with the sort of um, line chaos warband making an oath to bring down a giant predator or something for the the focus of the cards that would bring stuff was Moloch's mobs got a bit quigs and cold drogoth Oh, sorry, yeah, uh, Molog, yeah, Molog is a good one as well. It, yeah. Um, so Molog actually just wanted to, to get some sleep, but um, ended up in the Night Vault because magic. Um, and uh, yeah, he's really tough and very smashy. He's got seven wounds, which was the most in the game uh, at the time. He's inspired. He, by taking three or more wounds, he can move around much more aggressively to charge twice, which means he can smash lots of stuff up. Um, the squigs can't hold objectives, but each one's got unique abilities that can make them a nuisance. So there's a bat squig that can fly around, but it's, it's the mushroom squig, I think, which releases spores if you get too close to it. And there's a stalag squig, which is what happens when you cross a squig with rock formations um, and it's as bizarre as it sounds yeah. um, mobs sound amazing oh they are yeah. and they're beautiful to paint as well that's i think that's a that's a really good point michael is that each each of the war bands basically distill the archetypes and characteristics of their faction down into a doing a wee painting project but don't want to dive into a full army the the models make a fantastic wee project and they're all easy to build as well. So um, some of the earlier kits were a bit tricky because there might have been gaps or they might have been sort of awkwardly posed to fit the easy to build thing. But uh, as they've gone on, the, the posing on most of them is absolutely phenomenal. And the yeah, they, they've kind of really sum up the faction that they represent quite well, I think. Um, which actually brings me nicely on to Thundrix Profiteers, who are a five-man five warband, well, five-dwarf warband, the Caradron Overlords, who got trapped in Shadespire when their sky ship was lost, and they're led by an ether chemist called Bjorgen Thundrick. Um, and uh, as befits a Caradron crew, they're particularly well-armed and armoured, and they've, they've all got ranged attacks. Um they also inspire in a particular when you uh, score an objective and that gets them inspired. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's an ether chemist. There's Michael balloons on his back. There's one who's got a volley gun and a, a, one of the, the privateers who's got a cutlass and a, a, a pistol as well. So um, they were quite cool. Um, they really do look the part of a of a band of adventurers who've wandered in looking for treasure and now are a bit stuck. Um, they're really oh, cool. Yeah. Um, if I remember right, actually, they had a, a card which was called To the Skyship, and it could make, make them move faster. Because as you can imagine, with only short legs, dwarves aren't particularly fast. But they could sort of hustle uh, to try and get back to the Skyship, which was pretty cool. Um, next up is, is one of my favourite war bands of of the game Ilfari's Guardians um, it's a four fighter warband of Sylvaneth um, they were woken up by the Necroquake and they're led by Ilfari who's a level 2 wizard and she's sort of um, half made out of branches and half made out of angry tree spirit um, 
And uh, so they've got a, a balance of melee and ranged fighters as well as magic. And they inspire by healing, which you know, plays into the sort of the seasonal aspect of the Sylvaneth and the Lariel. Um, and they're quite nicely balanced as well because you've got four fighters, you've got four activations, and they can lean into an objective or, or aggro play. Uh, and again, the models are just absolutely phenomenal. Um, Very you know, fragile. There's, there's one wheel. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're they're a pain to build, um, but uh, they look absolutely gorgeous. Um, and then so there was uh, Champions of Dreadfane, which you mentioned earlier, Michael. So that was two warbands that were previously only available in the Dreadfane standalone game. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was Iron Souls Condemner and uh, Lady Harrow's Mournflight, which again, folks who've been collecting Mortal Realms will be familiar with. Um, so the Condemners are led by Gwyn Ironsoul, um, which I think is one of the most badass Age of Sigmar miniatures there is. Um, oh, you know, she's a, absolutely looks absolutely kick-ass. Um, same as most of the other Stormcaster, durable and hard-hitting. Um, probably less suited to hold objectives because it's only thing and they're not that fast. That's when they roll particularly well on their attack or defense rolls. So they're a bit easier to inspire than the Steelheart's Champions Warband. Um, the Morn flight, they're, they're more, my Morn Manchies. So again, because they're Nighthorn, they can move through blocked, lethal, and occupied hexes as if there was nothing there. Um, and they actually inspire by moving through an occupied uh, square. So like by moving over a fighter, which again feels like pretty a pretty Nighthawk thing to do. Yeah. Um, so the frighteningly sticks with their ghost weapons which are quite scary um so they kind of came out between season two and season three but I, i've included them in season two because they were under the night vault banner they came in the green packaging um but they are as viable now as they've ever been um i think the thorns know the uh more flight were doing particularly well and so were the thorns in season three um which brings me on to Beastgrave. So Beastgrave was the third season and um, moved to the realm of Gur, which is the realm of beasts. The color palette of the game changed because um, Night Vault and Shadespire were in Shyish, so they were kind of a ghostly green color. Uh, Gur being the realm of beasts, Beastgrave and Diarchasm are, are orange and more vibrant. Um, so yeah, the, the effects of the Necroquist to haunt the mortal realms and for those who were trapped in shades fire and had managed to make their way to the night vault a tear in reality allowed them to finally escape from the cursed city but rather than their freedom they instead emerged into a sentient mountain known as the beast grave in the, in gur the realm of beasts uh, and unfortunately the cataphrane curse hasn't been as into battle too and still everybody's trapped in this perpetual cycle of, of uh, battle and living sorry, and dying i think quite, um, I think quite uh, here the, uh, the cataphrane curse has been oh sorry so the unfortunately the cataphrane curse uh, wasn't escaped ah. um so they're still stuck in this cycle of, of uh, bloodshed and, and resurrection uh, and the beast grave was calling other war bands to uh, join them as well uh so the core set contained uh Two warbands, uh, Grashrax Despoilers and Skaith Swan. So, yeah, the, the uh, Beast Grave also introduced a couple of new mechanics into the game, but uh, I'm going to skip over those because I don't want to um, 
complicate things. This is more about the story than the mechanics at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, it, it, because it was the realm of beasts, it introduced um, mechanics around being hunters and quarry. So it was kind of pray, playing into beasts prey uh, and they changed the way that fighters and cards interacted with each other um, usually giving you an advantage at, um, at a cost but uh, it was quite a cool new element to the game uh, grass racks despoilers they were a really cool six fighter war band and they're beast men so they're led by grass rack who's a bray shaman uh, they've come to beast grave to revel in the unending carnage that the mountain they inspire when two or more enemy fighters are out of bat, you know, quite fitting for a, a Bray herd. And they've got a mix of ranged melee and magic. So um, the Bray Shaman can cast spells. They've got a, a big um, gore who can smash things with his uh, giant axe. And then there's a few ungores who've got bows and spears um, and they can fit multiple play styles with the right deck. So this is where the balance was starting to come in from the beginning where you could sort of, play whichever way you wanted rather than being a wee yeah. bit more restricted um the other warband was scaith's wild hunt which i thought were absolutely phenomenal so mm. these guys introduced the new race of the kernothi um they're kind of a combination of wood elves and satyrs and centaurs um and i think we're probably likely to see more of them going forward in aos i hope so um in fact if i remember right there is a oh, kernothi in cursed city yep yeah. So um, I, I think as, as the storyline rolls forward, we might see more of those, uh, more of the Kanathi in the mortal realms. Um, but they've traveled to the living mountain in the hopes of finding the heart of the mountain so that they can kill it and stop it from corrupting things. Um, they inspire separately when they've got a charge token at the end of a phase. So you need to quite carefully plan because you don't want to overexpose them, but and they are quite fragile. Um, but they've got another mix of ranged melee and magic, uh, and they can do multiple things. Um, and they're led by Skaith, who's this monstrous uh, sort of centaur with a spear and a shield that looks really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Grimwatch are these. These guys have got a really cool narrative. Actually, they're they're flesh eater courts. Um, band with seven fighters so there's six ghouls and a, a pair of bats and they're led by a duke who they, well they share this delusion in the same way that all the flesh eater courts do that they're sort of questing nobles protecting their kingdom when really they're horrific ghouls and monsters that feast upon flesh um so uh, the duke's got this giant halberd and fancies himself as a, a noble uh, noble ruler of a kingdom when in reality he's this sort of shriveled husk of a, a former man with a, you know, mangy fur and bones rammed through his shoulders and stuff. Um, but while he's alive, you can resurrect some of the weaker fighters. So there's, again, kind of this sort of um, horde of the undead. Like they're, um, they're very definitely a control war band, um, but they were very, very good and they're quite quick. Um, they also inspire when there's two few, well, fewer than two enemy fighters in your territory. So they were kind of quite possessive, which again fits with the flashy to courts. So if we're going to take over this cave and, and it's ours. Um, I do think another they missed a really. I do oh. think they missed a trick with them by not having the artwork on the card represent what they were, what they thought they were. Yes, 
Yeah, um, there was a couple of hints. So there was a character, I think, called Gristlewell Greatsword, who has got this sort of massive thigh bone, which you could imagine him thinking is a big two-handed uh, Claymore-type sword. But yeah, you're right, the, um, the sort of illusion of what they thought they were would have been quite a cool thing to play yeah, with. That would have been awesome to, to see. Um, yes, you're right, I think I missed a trick there. Um, the the next war band, these guys are really cool as well. I think these ones are one of my favourites. They're Ripper Snarlfangs. Oh, yeah, I love Fighters them. of Goblin, giant wolves. Um, so they're led by Rick, Ripper Narkbad, who was exiled from his tribe of other goblin wolf riders after he led a failed coup against the leader. Um, so he's convinced that one of Gorkamorka's legendary axes is hidden in the mountain of Beast Grave. And they're, they're really, really fast. And the wolves can actually attack. As well. So um, they're not particularly uh, accurate. After attacking a wolf attacking an adjacent fighter, they, they can chew through some warbands really quick. Um, and uh, they're really, really aggressive and incredibly fast as well. So they've got you know this, this ability to be very, very mobile and you can't really hide from them. Mm. Um, they've also they've got this kind of cool mechanic for inspiring as well, where Ripper inspires when he's got two or more upgrades, which kind of fits him being the boss goblin and having the most most treasure gets him gets him inspired. Yeah. 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 But his two sidekicks inspire when you attack Ripper, which kind of fits with the idea of them being like, oh, we better protect the boss. Oh. Yeah. Um, so that that's quite cool. Um, and it can actually it can give your opponent kind of a tricky decision sometimes because you you know you. You might want to take down the leader, but then as soon as you attack him, you inspire his two subordinates. So is it worth a trade-off? Yeah. Um, and they, again, they've got really... Um, the Worms Warband, they've got three fighters and they look suitably disgusting, as you'd expect for being Nurgle. Uh, Nurgle-esque. Um, they're led by a sorceress called Fecula Flybone. Uh, and actually, the reason they're called the Worms Bat is because, if I remember right, they travelled to the Beast Grave in a giant worm, which then regurgitated them into the mountain and went off to do things. So yeah, that's not for familiar. the haunted, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they really tough, which I think is quite what you'd expect from Nurgle fighters. Really, they're they're very hard to kill. Um, when they take damage, they're capable of actually reducing the amount of damage they take on their defense. So even if you're actually doing damage to them, the chances are they're going to be a wee bit more persistent than other fighters do. Um, and they can use some of their, their cards to heal up damage or damage that's being done. So you can just sort of keep them going a lot longer. Um, and they also had this kind of really cool mechanic called cycle cards, which fit with the sort of cycular nature of, of decay and pestilence. Um, they get inspired when three or more enemy fighters are out of action and or have got wound tokens. So you can get them inspired quite quickly, various cards and, and killing and wounding fighters. Um, they were one of my favorite war bands and they were really cool to paint up as well. A um, mm, lot of fun. To win by scoring points actually by stopping your opponent scoring points because they just won't die and they can sort of keep your opponent off objectives and stuff um Frothgorn's man trappers these are a, a five fighter war band led by a gore called Hrothgorn and they were ranging ahead of their tribe 
when the uh, Icebrow Hunter, who's the big saber tusk that's in the warband, caught what he thought was a scent of um, you know, abundant prey up ahead. Uh, so they hungrily followed the trail, but then realised they'd been lured into the beast grave instead. So yeah, yeah. There's a, a frost saber and a band of knoblot tagging along with Throthgorn. He's really tough, and he's got this giant trap launcher but the the knoblers might not look great but they're actually there they boost this capabilities quite well um and they get inspired when trothgorn takes an enemy fighter out of action next to him and then presumably wolfs them down because he's an ogre um the, yeah, that nasty bit of food in his in his bag it's really very fun yeah um another another really cool uh set of, of models as well i think and the, the sort of variety of poses they got from the easy to build with with him you know wielding that massive catapult that fires a man trap it looks really cool yeah definitely uh, next up are some devotees of kane morgwaith's blade coven uh, they've got five fighters led by morgwaith who's a hag queen uh, they've also got a Melusse Bloodstalker, which is she's sort of half woman, well, half elf woman, half snake, uh, a sister of slaughter and two witch elves. And they were sent by Marathi, who is aspiring to be the new god of the dark elves, uh, to seek a lost shard of Cain. But really, they've just been tricked into sending, uh, being sent to the mountain. Um, and uh, there's just there's nothing but fighting and bloodshed to be had there. But because they're followers of Cain, who's the bloody respect of uh, the elven gods uh, they, they don't really have any issue with being sent into uh, an eternity of bloodshed really yeah, they're, they're quite, happy. quite quite happily slaughtering their way through everything and offering sacrifices they're incredibly fast but very fragile kind of glass cannons really expire by the time you get to the third round of the game um, which is quite interesting because um, there's no other warband who will do that that's guaranteed to get inspired. These guys, I suppose, it's the fact that they've they've been in the fight for long enough to get their blood up. They're just inspired. But you can inspire faster using uh, an Gwaith has, uh, which fits in quite well with the shelves sacrificing and using blood to empower themselves. Um, they're quite tricky to use, though. The, uh, they're probably not a warband for beginners, uh, but they do bring a mix of characteristics to the table, and the miniatures are absolutely phenomenal. They're really dynamically posed. Mm-hmm. Um, probably another one that's tricky to build, like the Guardians, but once they're built, they, they look absolutely amazing. Oh, they do. I, I finished them a couple of weeks ago, so yeah. I was very happy with them. Cool. Um, the uh, last one for Season 3 were Morgox Crushers, so the bigger tougher oryx uh, back for another go they're really durable three fighter warband um they're oryx iron jaws um they came to the living mountain chasing glory in the eyes of gorka who's the orc god um and again like iron skulls boys are just stuck around because what what's better for an orc than you know an eternity of fighting and bashing things um as i was saying before they're very firmly in the aggro camp but they can do a little bit of objective play as well and they get inspired by getting uh wire counters so the more you get them stuck in the more they get their blood up and particularly when you're making attack actions 
Uh, and they're another set of absolutely amazing models. I really enjoy painting mine up and they're really fun to play because you don't have to think too hard about what you're doing. You can just get stuck in and start smashing things. Yeah. Um, but they, they do lack magic and ranged attacks, though, which is something to bear in mind, um, which fits with the uh, Oryx. But um, yeah, something to think about when you're when you're playing them is that you really do need to get stuck in because they don't have any other way of attacking uh, so they rounded out season three um and uh, then there was a sort of a wee break obviously because uh, of the current circumstances that the world found itself in um but dire chasm was viewed towards the end of summer last year if i remember right so season four um About that, yeah so it was it was a wee bit late on being released because it should have been in the autumn and it didn't come out until Christmas be done about that. Uh, it is what it is, as they say. Um, it, there was a few tweaks to the mechanics of the game uh, and to the core rules based on player feedback. Um, and one of the really cool aspects is you can now download the core rulebook as a PDF for free from the website. And um, there's, a, there's a link for that, um, which I'm sure we can put in the notes for folks. I can yeah, do, yeah. do that. Um, which means you can you can have a look at the, how the game plays uh, before you buy anything, or if you've managed to pick up a Warband or two secondhand or something, uh, you can probably give it a try, uh, which I think is a really cool way of getting people into the game. Uh, similar to the other core sets, Dire Chasm brings two Warbands to the table. Uh, in this case, Mayari's Purifiers, who are an... El, uh, an elven warband of Lumineth Realm Lords and the Dread Pageant who are again fantastically flavorful models for the uh, Head of Knights of Slanish um, so yeah the uh, the Lightbringers are four fighter warband uh, um, they're quite balanced they travel to the Beast Grave to try and heal the mountain's heart um, which fits in with the fluff of the the realm lords um and uh, so yeah there's uh Mayari, who's a wizard they've also got uh, an archer and um they've got uh I forget the name of the fighter type now but there's a guy with a giant hammer and a massive cow helmet and oh, yeah. um they're, they're funny looking they do look funny uh and then there's also um she was a preview so her her name is the mind's edge uh, but she's a preview of one of the new sword wielding fighters that we saw in uh age of our preview uh that warhammer community did um so they've all got kind of unique abilities um they inspire by uh rolling successes in their attack defense or magic rolls which um those who are familiar with the fluff of the light uh the lumineth and their sort of pursuit of perfection uh is quite fitting you you inspire by having a perfect role um but that makes it quite tricky uh to do sometimes they're quite fragile so you can't really go toe-to-toe with other warbands without some really careful planning but they do have um again those who are familiar with the the lore of the Lumineth will know about Ether Quartz and how that supercharges Elves mm. from uh, Highish. So these guys make use of Ether Quartz and they can supercharge their abilities or use it to reroll dice um, as well. Uh, the Dread Pageant, meanwhile, are aligned to Slanish, so they kind of round out each of the four gods has got their own warband up to 
stuff in the underworlds now. Uh, and as Michael said, they've got a monstrous slang or uh, which just looks phenomenal. Um, they're led by Vasilak the Gifted. And when they heard of a, a mountain that was sentient, they jumped at the chance to discover brand new ways of um, getting sensations as Head of Knights would. Uh, so now they thrive off inflicting pain to the mountain and, you know, inflicting pain on other warbands. Um, the theme of thriving on sensation is kind of woven through this warband. One of the ones they've done a phenomenal job of, like, making the warband play the way that they would in the fluff. Um, they get inspired by having um, surviving fighters have six or more wound tokens, whether that's themselves or your opponent. Um and Vasilak, the leader, and Slake Slash, the Slangor, can hurt or heal themselves, which plays into the sort of thriving on sensation mechanic. Uh, and the miniatures are absolutely phenomenal as well. The uh, the leader Vasilak is quite reminiscent of one of the old champions of Slanesh from Warhammer Fantasy Battle, um, and is just stood in this sort of pose of "come at me, but probably don't come at me because I'll stab you" kind of way. <laughs> oh very much so yeah um and then uh i'll just sort of quickly run through the rest because we've only we so we've had we've had diarchasm the corset with those two warbands and then we've had the first expansion kagra's reavers who are a four fighter warband of slaves to darkness so going back to the old chaos warriors type of look um they've got a really cool story behind them so they're led by kagra the usurper and she's known as the usurper because they were formerly led by her sister zarsha who's the spellcaster in the warband uh zarsha led them into the uh the beastgrave mountain and down into the dire chasm and then got them trapped in a chamber which the ceiling started to crush down on and kagra led them out by wedging her shield into the gap and allowing them to escape but ever since then uh the other fighters have been following kagra but zarsha's still looking for the opportunity to uh sort of seize control back again um and that actually plays into the way that they play in that with a sort of a, the right combination of cards. If Kagra's killed, Zarsha can take over as leader. So they're the first warband in the game that can potentially have two leaders uh, in play. Well, not in play, but two leaders in the warband. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also, fittingly for, for Slaves to Darkness, they're about desecrating objectives. And they've got a mechanic whereby they can actually deny objective tokens to their uh to your opponent on a temporary basis and they're also very really cool models as well um they're tough and they hit hard but they're not very nimble which is probably about right for heavily armored chaos warriors yeah um the remaining the warbands i'm just going to run through they haven't been released yet although it was announced yesterday which is quite fitting for this uh, conversation that the starblood stalkers skink and seraphon warband mm. will be up for pre-order next saturday oh, so they are not far off um being available um so the starblood stalkers they've got six fighters they're led by a skink priest named Kixitaka. Uh, there's muscle uh, as a saurian and They've been tasked by the slan to seek out Beast Grave's heart and destroy it before the slaves of Crick. Um, so they're kind of set up, I suppose, as being directly opposite to uh, Kagra's Ravages. Um, the Crimson Court, they haven't been released yet either. They're a four fighter Soulblight Vampire Warband, another set of phenomenal miniatures. Oh, yeah. And it's been hinted 
they'll be really aggressive, which I think fits with vampires, and they'll have like a mechanic around thirsting, which will be quite cool to see how that works. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, well, I imagine that they'll probably play into Cursed City and the, the sort of exploration of Soul Blight that we've, we've, has been hinted is coming as well. So it'd be yeah. really cool they to see how that few, develops. They shut off a few vampire models and uh, I think we should be expecting vampires at some point. Mm-hmm, definitely. And the uh, just on that note, the, the White King on Skeletal Steed is looking amazing as well. Uh, amazing to the point that I went back to looking at um, a couple of tomes around Death Forces and then the core rulebook and then was like, no, you don't need another project right now. Yeah, I was the same. That, that, <laughs> that White King is, is calling to me, but I'm like, nope. Nope. <laughs> um so yeah the um the other one that's been really quite heavily focused on in previews uh, is headcrackers mob um these guys are another auric war band but they're bone splitters this time uh, so they're led by headcracker who's calls himself the gob of gork and he's a, a savage York shaman uh, they've come to Beastgrave to hunt the biggest monster of all the mountain itself whether you can actually hunt a mountain or not is probably something that they don't even care about their green skins, but uh, anyway, they're um, apparently quite well-rounded. Yeah, give it a shot. They'll, they'll give anything a shot, I suppose. They're quite well-rounded. They've got two ranged and two melee fighters. Um, they apparently take really good advantage of the hunter and quarry mechanics that were introduced in Beast, which I think is quite fitting for bone splitters being uh, trackers and trappers and hunters. Um, and again, really dynamically posed models and headcracker looks with his staff raised up and he's kind of dancing and he's got a big mask on like a, a shaman uh bone split a shaman as well so and a snake uh, and a snake yes that's right uh don't can't forget the snake um the last two war bands there's nothing known about them other than the fact they've been featured on the underworld's roadmap so if i remember right the last roadmap preview showed a silhouette of the next one but Looking at the logos on the roadmap, there is an Ossiarch Bone Reaper war band to come. And an Idenethdeepkin. And there's an Idenethdeepkin ones. So we'll find out more about the year goes on. They did preview a silhouette of one of the fighters of an Ossiarch Bone Reaper's war band. And although I must admit I wasn't particularly keen on the Ossiarch Bone Reapers to begin with, um, the more I read about them, the more interesting they sound. And I think if they carry on along the line of like the war archetypes of the ranges and being very dynamically posed, it could be a really interesting one to paint with lots of different textures of, of segmented armor and bone and, uh, and, and weapons. So that'd be quite cool. And the deepkin could be interesting as well. Um, they we might, might see some of the sort of smaller, uh, beasts come into play there. I, I don't know. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Um, and then very, very quickly, again, we saw in one of the previews that this the starter set that I mentioned coming, um, the pictures have revealed that there's two warbands in the starter set, the Storm of and Wraith Creepers even. So again, those who've been collecting Mortal Realms will be familiar with these miniatures, or if you've picked up any of the easy-to-build uh, miniatures, you've probably seen the uh, Castigators and Griffhound and the Glaive Wraith Stalkers. Uh, so two quite uh, equal in terms of model count warbands uh, and, and this will 
contain pre-built decks. So you can just, again, sorry, we're playing with them straight away, which is quite a rapid, but hopefully uh, insightful journey through all of the seasons so far and what's to, still to come for the current season uh, of yeah. Warhammer Underworlds. Fantastic. So obviously there are, as you say, two starter sets you can go out and buy right now. Uh, Beast Grave and Diachasm. Uh, yeah. Both quite good. And where else would you recommend people go to find out a bit more if they want to start delving into um, uh, a di- di- uh, shade, uh, I was going to say Shades by Diachasm <laughs> <laughs> uh, into Underworlds? Well, um, so again, I've, I've pulled together some links for, for sharing for folks, but um, there's quite a few places. So there's, a, there's an Underworlds website, which you can go to and read a bit more about this. Chasm can be downloaded. Um, there's a phenomenal amount of blogs and podcasts out there, um, of which I, I, if, if I'm not calling them out, this is not me saying they're any good. It's just there's so many. But... Uh, uh, into the game um there's also steel city underworlds and hexes and warbands uh, they've got some great blogs and some really good articles uh set the tempo is another good one as well as path to glory that's a, a good podcast there's also into the glory hole i think they're mainly based on youtube but they've mm-hmm. got some great videos there's well of power which is kind of but there's also a, a gallery of warbands there so if you want to have a look at how folks have painted up their warbands and get some ideas some really good pictures mm-hmm. there and Goonhammer have just started recently doing some articles on Underworlds as well. Ah, oh, fantastic. Um, so, uh, and they, just, they, this the first one, by the way, sorry. To, oh, that's all right. Uh, can, can you roll a crit? Uh, so, that's um, can you roll a crit? They've, uh, John has got a blog and he does YouTube videos, and I think he's got a podcast on the go as well. He's awesome. a phenomenally busy man, but, um, uh, great guy and lots of these guys are also really interactive on facebook as well in facebook groups so um yeah facebook's a really great place and the communities are fantastic um they're very very welcoming and um generally there's no such, such thing as a stupid question because obviously you know if, if you come across a rule of interaction you're not sure about or how things are supposed to work um folks are really great at answering questions the other thing i'd recommend is if, if you have picked up some sets and you're thinking about deck building but you're thinking my god i've got mountains of cards and how the heck does this even work there's some deck builders that you can access online as well there's probably mobile app ones too but i've i've not really used them because i don't like squinting at a small screen and trying to read card text but there's an official warhammer underworlds deck builder on the website uh the, the warhammer underworlds website there's also underworlds db and deckers and this is where the cards being revealed has been fantastic because um, it allows you to, to build a deck and, and look at how it'll all work, play it and see how it works. The other thing you can do is um, it's not got all of the warbands that are available so far, but you can play Warhammer Underworlds, um, which uh, successfully combines the cards and deck building and dice and miniatures but in a much more interactive way, as you'd expect. Um, yeah, there's not all the warbands are available, but there's a selection of them, and they're adding content all the time. And if I remember right, 
White Dwarf that's forthcoming with all the Steam codes, I think has got a code for Warhammer Underworlds Online. It in does. It, it does. I, I, I bought the game when it came out, and um, I think I've got I think I've got all but one of the warbands they've released so far. But what I one of the things I love about that is when they release a new warband, they release all the universal cards. You get the universal cards free. Yes. You don't have to actually buy the warband to get the universal cards. Yeah, I think I think it's a really good touch for allowing people to focus on playing the factions that they want to play, uh, but still have that. And it makes sense for a digital release as well, because obviously you, you don't have to package things or produce things in a certain way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, that I think that's about does it. So thank you very much for joining us today, James. And uh, we'll have you on again soon because we want to talk about, um, uh, you know, focusing on actually building a deck because I think that's such a massively important part of the game. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, it's always great stuff, particularly about Underworlds. Um, so hopefully you guys will uh, pick up Diarchasm or drag one of the other core sets you've got covered and give it another go. And yeah, I think maybe even talk about. Too. Excellent. Well, maybe we can even talk about some of the some of the things that you've come across when you're deck building yourselves. Uh, if you can give it another. Yeah, that would be awesome. Cool. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks James. very much. No worries. Okay, so we're back now after we've um, had a little bit of a talk about uh, Carnivale and Aeronautica. Uh, not Aeronautica, Underworlds. We're talking about Aeronautica we're now. We're talking about Aeronautica now. Okay, so yeah, me and Megan, um, I bought both Aeronautica sets and we painted those up together yes. between us. Or, well, yeah. I painted... I painted. You painted <laughs> most of it, I painted the orc planes. Yeah, you painted the orc planes. So, um, I stole them from you. You did. So I think we ought to start off by saying what it is and yeah it's basically a flying game yeah it's a it's like an air skirmish yeah um, with all of the planes that you find in 40k um, in miniaturized miniaturized version mm-hmm. um, and you get into dogfights as yeah, we've, we've only played the dogfight mission, but yeah. there's more advanced missions there's, with, like... There's attacking ground yeah. area. So so we only played a very, very basic game. Yes. But it was, it was was I think it was enough to give us a flavour, and I think we're definitely going to be going to try and do some stuff again. Yeah. Yeah, so um, start off by talking about the models. Now, there are four factions in the game. I suppose technically, really, there's only three. I suppose... Eh. It's a bit of a weird one because you've got in the first box Wings of Vengeance, which is still available, which is great. Yeah. You've awesome. got Orcs and Imperial Navy. In the Imperial Navy, you've got Thunderbolts and Marauders. Um, so they're pretty cool to paint. Uh, what, what about the Orcs? The what Orcs was... were super detailed. Yeah. The the models are really detailed. They haven't they haven't gone and gone. Well, we're making smaller models. We'll just get rid of some of the detail. They put it all in there. Um, so they were really good to paint. Um, mm-hmm. I used contrast for a lot of it because it really highlighted the um, 
quality yeah. tool. Work for that. There was a right tutorial you followed, wasn't there? Yeah, there was some. Ah. I can't remember who did it. I'll we'll find, find it. it and put it in the show notes. Put it, find it and put it in the show notes. It was a yeah. really, really good one, and it was it was contrast and lots of and stuff like that. It was really, really yes. good because contrast is really. I find contrast works really well with little stuff like this. Um, I oh I can't remember. Did I use contrast? No, I don't think I did use contrast. I think I'll use a little bit for weathering, but yeah. not not really in the big way. Um, and so that's Wings of Vengeance. That's the first box set. Uh, the second box set is um, Skies tell. Skies of Fire, and that's a um, yeah. Well, I, I, you, you basically you basically bought Wings of Vengeance and then went, oh, they brought one out with Tau in it. Now I need to buy that. Well, I always wanted the Tau. It basically I I held off with Aeronautica until they said that, until they released the, the Tau. And then they previewed the Tau. I think it was last year at, was it the year before? It was one of the events. They, they basically went and previewed Tau. And I was like, I've got to get into this game. Because the idea is that eventually I'm supposing they're going to have a Manta for the Tau. Yes, you want your Manta. I've always wanted a Manta. It's completely impractical. It's the size of a coffee table. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a mate who has a Manta in his garage. Uh, he, well, actually, his garage is like a huge Warhammer table. I mean, it's massive. His Warhammer table is literally the size of the studio. Wow. It, you have to crawl under it to get into the middle. <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. But it's like, yeah, I'd love that. We played Apocalypse on there a couple of times. But he had a, ta he had a Manta. He's unpainted, which is like, oh, you know, it'd be like, if I had it, that would be getting painted like right away. Um, anyway, so we had to, he had to literally use a um, turned over big sort of uh, box to sort of put it on the table and it was it, it's just completely impractical in game but it's so awesome and i want to own one so i'm I, i'm resigned to only owning an aeronautica one i'm happy so with you're that. hoping to produce one i, I, I really hope please forge world if you're listening a, a, a manta please a manta that's all i want a manta anyway um so yeah tau anyway i rushed out and then bought Wings of Vengeance, thinking, right, I've got need the starter set for all the rules and stuff. And then I didn't really like read the announcement properly. It was actually a second starter set, so I could have just gotten the first one. Yeah. Yeah, same. But you wouldn't have had Yorks. You wouldn't have had Yorks. You wouldn't have had Yorks. So anyway, so yeah, so the models, absolutely fantastic. The, the, the towel you get in that box set, um, Sky's Fire, you get her three Barracudas and two Tiger Sharks, which is really cool because Tiger Sharks are massive models in themselves. Um, uh, you know, in real life, they're massive yeah. models, but in this, they're a little bit more manageable. Um, but actually, speaking of that, saying that, though, these planes are actually the same scale as Titans from Titanicus. Yes, yeah. So, you know, I know a lot of people use these planes as scenery. Yeah, and the ground assets as well can be used with Titanicus as scenery. Yeah, but sacrilege because they should be used for this game because it's really really good so we played a game on was it saturday or sunday 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 we played a game on sunday yeah that was really good um yeah so how did you find the actual game um i really enjoyed it yeah um me too it was even though spoiler alert i i got my ass whooped you really did i really did it was really easy to pick up mm -hmm. i watched the video um, on YouTube from uh, by Becca. Becca Scott's video, Becca yeah. Becca Scott's video, um, the night before, and that we'll put that in the show notes because if you want to get into this game, watch that video. It's absolutely. 
it tells you everything you need to know and it's really succinct it's awesome so i i went into it pretty much knowing what i needed to do um i was teaching michael the game from holding the rule book in one hand and remembering the video on the other hand so um it was really easy to pick up it was really fun to play um the turns are quite quick there's I, I took a while moving on my planes. Yeah, I think the only downside was, for me was that you had a lot of analysis paralysis. But as you pointed out, that's because most of the game you had more planes than me. Yeah, especially once I started knocking yours off. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> thanks for that. Um, but it works slightly similar, I guess, to X-Wing. And that you select your manoeuvre, your ace manoeuvres, before the round starts. Which is quite interesting. Yeah, so you all select your manoeuvres... Um, secretly and then the person who has initiative basically reveals one of their manoeuvres and goes first yep pretty much moves moves to one of their planes and then their, their, your opponent moves one of theirs and you continue until you've all moved <laughs> and then you go into firing so you have to anticipate where your opponent's moving to and where you want to move to in order to fire on them. So that's why I have analysis paralysis quite often. Yeah, I think the only thing we didn't really take into account properly was we didn't really do much in the way of changing up and down, um, you know, uh, altitude. No, you, you can change your speed and altitude. So we changed speed quite a lot. But we didn't do so much with the altitude. But we, we pretty much stayed on the same couple of altitudes. Yeah, three and four. Three and four, yeah. But um, there are risks if you go too high or too low. There are, yeah, stalling. So, so uh, I think we'll definitely have to be picking up another game. I'm going to put it out, our game, try and put it out as a battle report later later this week. That would be good. Yeah, so, so try and put it out as a, as, a, as, a, as a video battle report. Um, but yeah, that was fairly good. I really enjoyed it. Um, even though I got my ass handed to me. And I think that was because I went in with like, right, I'm going to go and play and didn't even consider looking at the actual weapon stats on my planes, which were all, <laughs> right, these need to be at medium range. I can't be getting up close. Yeah. So that was my so fallout. You've got so... three ranges. You've got short range, which the orcs were really good at, and I knew they'd be really good at because that's what orcs are like. Mm -hmm. There's medium range, which you were good at, and then there's long range. Yeah. Um, and I was, I, I basically ignored, it was like things like my LAS cannons didn't work at short range. And I was like, what am I doing? But when you were able to hit me with them, they were really bad. Oh, so I, I just I tried to stay close to you after that. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, definitely interesting game. But I'm going to change up next time and I'm going to use the Tau because that's what I got into this game for. Because I love Tau aircraft and um, I, I just can't wait for things like the Remoras. Uh, to come out, for, for, I'm guessing they're going to be Forge World. They're sort of like oh, little drones, but they're tiny. They're going to be tiny. Yeah. And um, cool. I definitely want some more. Yeah, so in terms of expansion, ah, there's, there's some really nice models in the range. Um, I, I mean, there's only three for the tower right now, but I definitely want to get some um, more of everything. More of More of the tower. So more no of the tower. Stay in the two little boxes. No, no, I'll probably still live in the boxes. I'll probably still live in the boxes. I want, some, I want some more towel because I want some more options because I think I definitely want uh, another box of barracudas so I can give myself more options there because um, I, I, I like them. 
Um, and the Tiger Sharks. Oh, they're just lovely. How many did you get in a box? Two. Okay, yeah, that's... Yeah, that, it almost feels like, for the price of getting... It almost feels like, in a way, I might be even better off just getting a new um, Skies of Fire box set to get two Tiger Sharks and, um, and then the rest of the planes. Well, yeah, never know, maybe. Might do that. Okay. I might do that another Wings of uh, Skies of Fire box. I want a Grot Bomber. You want a Grot Bomber? Yes. I don't know you want a Grot Bomber. <laughs> I mean, they look cool. I just love them. They look cool. I mean, the little grot little bomb. Grot bombs. Yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> so cute. Um, yeah, they're amazing. Um, and yeah, and oh, 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 the um, the Avenger Strike Fighters. I'd love, love some of them. For they are interesting models. Yeah. They're nice. There's lots of cool stuff because the other box, Skies of Fire. I don't think we mentioned what it's got in it. It's got um, it's got Imperial Navy slash Imperial Guard, um. Which is sort of like this weird Imperial Guard can work with the Imperial Navy and they have their own thing and it's a little weirdy thing there. But they've got lightning fighters, which are really cool from the, uh, for they're, they're from, uh, uh, they're in heresy, they're, they're just incredible. Uh, it's got two Valkyries and I built one Valkyrie and one Vendetta and I built them to match my Militarium Tempestus. Yeah. So they're quite cool. And then you get three Barracudas and two Tiger Sharks, so. Anyway, um, I think there was one criticism I have again, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be right. There's a criticism I have. Yeah. And you and we were both talking about it. Stat cards. We could do with stat cards. Yes, we got into it, and we were having to pass the book back and forwards, and it was annoying. And I think it's it's a thing with all GW stuff, though. You could always use stat cards, and then never have them. Well, unless you're in Age of Sigma. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you if you buy if you buy into the, if you buy the army early enough you get the stat you can get the stat cards yeah. um, okay. and then they go out of print which is annoying. But yeah, it, it would be useful to have them because see it's... they did have them, but then they went yeah. out of print. Yeah. So I'm a bit mm, annoyed about that, but they have they have all the stuff online though, don't they? Uh, I don't think the stats for these are online. But I'm going to make some up for next time. I'm going to laminate some up and put them in the box so we can use them next time. Yeah. But yeah, that's that. We can make our own, but it's just it will be easier if they were actual stat cards that Might come even with be it. Something in Battle that you can put in front of you. Yeah, I think if those were easier to get hold of, it would make the game easier because right now, I'm looking it up in the book is a bit annoying. And yeah. I guess it's thinking of other skirmishy games like this, like. Warcry um, and Kill Team, you have your stat card and it helps a lot. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, right, so I think that's about all we've got to say for Aeronautica. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get the, as I said, we'll get the battle report up later this week. So I guess we're going to close the show now. So, um, yeah. We're going to go away. What plans have you got for next month? Uh, for next month, I. I think I'm gonna do a tactical squad, Blood Angels. Yeah, Is I think you said. Squad? Yeah, you wanted me to airbrush them. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to airbrush them. Get a Mephiston red base yeah. coat now. Um, okay, and I'm gonna just. I'm gonna work on. Um, I'm. I'm not sure. I've got. I've got a plan. 
I want to get my termite done. Long term plan. I've got a long term plan. Yeah. I want to get. I think I want to try and get my termite done for yeah. my mechanicum. I think that would be Your nice. Mole. Yeah, my mole. I was tempted to paint it yellow, it looks like a but mole. it does look like a thunderbird's mole. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, what else is there? That's, well, I have that's... one question. Yeah. I have one question. Go on. When are we buying Carnivale? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we we're both really taken with that game. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really nice looking game. It um, is. I think definitely this year. Yeah. This, 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 this in the next couple of months we'll probably buy a box set. Yeah, Maybe the thirty-five pound, or do you want the full one? Maybe try and dip our toe in with us thirty-five. I think we should see where we are because the see where we are in terms of the, money. Um, I guess, yeah. The, the full starter set is. Um, so follow that link to Element Games, guys. <laughs> it looks very cool. Yeah, it does so, look very um, cool. You get a gondola. Gondola, yeah. I'd love to paint a gondola. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, that's that's I guess what we'll be doing next month. Um, I think we we've got we're going to hopefully be talking to the guys from Mantic Games about Armada. Yeah. Or at least I will be. I don't know if you want to join in on that one. I know nothing about the game, and you know nothing about the game, so. <laughs> We both be neat. We'll learn something. We'll learn something. Um, and uh, that's about all we've got right now planned. So yeah, we'll get some more things. Yeah, we'll get some more things sorted out in the next in the next week. Okay, fantastic. All right, cheers. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Bye. Bye.